have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? Looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet Radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 3675. So sit back, relax, and remember Southern Sense is common sense. You're listening live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Global Enlightenment Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, iHeartRadio, and oh, half a dozen other places. I have no idea where we are. But I'm going to tell you, I'm the hostess with the least most is the Radio Chickadee, Annie, along with my guest co-host going, what the hell did I get myself into today, Lucretia Hughes of Real Talk Radio. Good afternoon, Lucretia. Are you happy to be here or are you ready for the hills? Actually, I am ready. I have no idea what I'm in store for, but you know what? We are in it for the long haul. Oh, that that we are. And I got to tell you, I now have a check mark next to my Twitter ID. I've got that little blue check mark. I'm someone. <laughs> do do you really think it's worth it uh getting the, the check marks and being verified? I know about hacking and I know about spammers and people, you know, doing an offshoot of your name. But do you think it's worth it doing getting a blue check mark on Facebook and uh Twitter? I don't know. It's going to be interesting to find out. I, I did it just to see what would happen, uh, but I got to admit that uh, for some reason my Facebook uh, listeners have went from I think it was somewhere around four thousand down to around six hundred. So something's going on. Uh, I mean, I'm finding. Not, I'm sorry, Twitter. Twitter was something like around five or six thousand. Now it's a mere five or six hundred. Something's going on oh, where wow. I I got shadow banned. That's a big drop. That's a huge huge drop. So I'm going to see what happens with the blue check mark, if anything changes. Well, I'm going to follow your lead and wait and see if it's worth it, and then I will um, willing to invest $8 in myself. 
Yeah, well, I figured $11 a month, it's not going to break the bank, so let me try it. And I was surprised that I got, I saw this morning, the check mark was there. So I'm somebody now, back on Twitter. <laughs> still still getting shadow banned on uh, YouTube, but that's all right. That's all right. I can deal with that. Well, at least you're still on YouTube. We got banned a long time ago. They said we was a threat to the global community. Uh well, I think this is the second time I've been banned. So I went from, again, several thousand followers on YouTube down to now seven. <laughs> so, oh, wow. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a proud badge. That is a really, really proud badge, isn't it? <laughs> I wonder if I would can get my YouTube page back up. Probably not. Well, I had to open up a whole new one. Um, oh. They wouldn't allow me to open up the old one. So it's a whole new one. <laughs> so if anyone is looking for me up on YouTube, yes, it still is under seven cents, but there's a bunch of numbers after it. So you just have to scroll through which one, and it, you'll you'll see my smiling face. There's only one of me, thank God. <laughs> I like that, Dave. My husband can actually do the real news with Lucretia Hughes because I only went by Lucretia Hughes the last time. So maybe we can get a whole new Facebook page and have it the real news with Lucretia Hughes. They'll probably take that down too. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Well, anyway, we got ourselves a rocking show, and there's so much that's going on that we can talk about, too, in between. But we have Richard North Patterson. He's the author of a new book coming out next month on June 13th called Trial. And oh, the story behind him, Lucretia, uh, he could not get a publisher to publish the book. He, I, he went through a, at least two dozen different publishers. And you know Why? He's a white man Why? that wrote about two black characters. And they told him, because you're white, you cannot write about black characters. Oh, wow. That's, yeah. I mean, think about how many books did he, have been did written through the view, century. Did he, actually, did he go out there and do the research? Did he ask his best friends? Did he ask his, um, someone he knows to get the point oh. of view to write it accurately? Because if he did, it doesn't oh. matter. If, and if it's a work of fiction or even nonfiction, does it really matter? Yeah. Well, he did all of above, all of the above. Definite, deep, deep research. And we're going to talk to him about that one. So, I mean, just think about all the, the millions of books that have been written through the centuries. And no one ever, you know, uh, said we're not going to publish because you're not woke enough or you're not the right color, or you're right, not the right gender. No. But still, that just throws everything in the right literary world on its ear. Uh, we also have Chadwick Moore. He's got a new book coming out in all, oh, not August, July, called Tucker, writing about Tucker Carlson. Hence, my oh, wow. title to today's show, if you followed Tucker when he first came on air, he used to wear bow ties, if you remember. And over time, he got rid of the bow ties and started wearing regular ties. So I suggested that they change the name of the book to Tucker from Bow Tie to the Beltway. Is that not a title for a book? We'll see I if they change like it. <laughs> and if you knew who Tucker Carson's father was, you know, he's been in part of journalism for pretty much all his life. And I do believe at one point he was an ambassador for the United States. So we'll be talking to him about all the stuff going on with Tucker. Uh, we have my friend, Mark Tapscott. He comes on, Lucretia, every other week. Uh, he originally started, uh, he was the founder of Hill Faith, where he was bringing faith 
to Capitol Hill. Uh, he also has been a well-known journalist. He is the D.C. correspondent for the Epic Times. I've known this man for years, and I just love having him every other week. He'll be joining us later on. And then Heritage is sending us back Hannah Davis. Heritage sends us someone every week. So God bless them for wow. the hard work they do. So we got ourselves Thank a you, lot Heritage to talk about. Foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, but, Lucretia, you know we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. But before I do that, I want to remind everyone that this weekend, Monday, is a special day. It's a special day. Everyone should take a few moments aside. Don't go rushing to that barbecue or to that big sale at the nearest box, big box store. Take a few moments and sit back and thank those that came before us. Because Monday is Memorial Day. And this came in my email from the Heritage Foundation just before the show uh, came on uh, from the from the um, Vice President Andrew uh, McIntosh. And uh, he writes, and I, I couldn't put this better. Uh, I'm sorry, McIndoe. Not McIntosh, McIndoe. Uh, he writes, as Memorial Day approaches, I want to take a moment to remember those who paid the ultimate sacrifice to safeguard our nation from adversaries, foreign, and domestic. As Ronald Reagan stated in his 1967 inaugural address as governor of California, quote, freedom is a fragile thing, and it's never more than one generation away from extinction. It is not ours by way of inheritance. It must be fought for and defended constantly by each generation. For it comes only once to a people, and those in world history who have known freedom and then lost it have never known it again. We especially like this quote here at Heritage. It speaks to something we understand in our bones. Freedom comes at a high price, and it's our duty to remind each generation never to take it for granted. I hope you'll join me in being deliberate about how you observe this weekend. We're going to line our driveway with small American flags, attend a parade, and make phone calls to family members who have lost loved ones in the line of duty. I love to hear how you plan to remember the brave men and women in uniform who laid down their lives for the protection of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What does this day mean to you? Grateful as always to hear your thoughts and reflections. Wishing you a meaningful weekend. Best. Andrew, Vice President of Development, the Heritage Foundation. I could not say it any better, Lucretia. I could not say it any better. Amen. Well, with that said, we will move forward to our dedication to a fallen hero. And it's going to go out to Deputy Sheriff Josh Owen. And this is from the Officer Down Memorial page. And it reads, Deputy Sheriff Josh Owen was shot and killed while he and another deputy attempted to arrest a man for domestic violence in the 400 block of Stroman Street in Cyrus. Deputies, as well as police officers from Glenwood Police Department and Starbuck Police Department, had been dispatched to the house for reports of a domestic violence incident. 
The officers were attempting to place the man into custody when he opened fire on them. Deputy Owen and the subject were both fatally wounded. The other deputy and the Starbuck officer were injured. The incident occurred on Deputy Owen's 44th birthday. Deputy Owen was also a Minnesota National Guard during Operation Iraqi Freedom and served there. He had served with the Pope County Sheriff's Department for almost 12 years. He is survived by his wife, son, and parents. And his father is a retired law enforcement officer. And this is from the Swift County Monitor News, written by Reed and Finson. And he writes, Pope County Sheriff's Deputy Josh Owen, 44, was shot and killed in Cyrus as he and another deputy and a Starbuck police officer were responding to a domestic incident call around 7.30 p.m. on April 15th. The other deputy and the Starbuck officer were also wounded. Owen was hospitalized, but later died at Glacial Ridge Hospital in Glenwood, the sheriff's office reported on that Sunday. The other two law enforcement officers were treated for their injuries, but did not require hospitalization. The man who shot at the officers was killed by return fire from them. Owen served as a Swift County Deputy Sheriff before going to work for Pope County. Even after he started with the Pope County, he continued to work a few more years as a part-time deputy for Swift County. That Sunday at 1 p.m., the Pope County Sheriff's Office and the BCA conducted a joint news conference on the incident. And they stated, We are here today to give what details we can at this time. Pope County Sheriff Tom Riley. And he found it difficult to speak through his emotions, and yet he continued. Yesterday, April 15th, Pope County lost a brother. Our sympathies and love are with Deputy Josh Owen's family and with the families of the other deputies and officers involved. Our community partners, Glacial Ridge Hospital staff, EMTs, and all other public safety and first responders near and far that have assisted during this difficult time have our deepest gratitude, he said. Deputy Owen had a heart as big as his stature. He leaves behind a wife and a son. He loved his family, his brotherhood, and his community. Deputy Owen served as the Pope County Sheriff's Office for nearly 12 years and also served his country in the United States military. At this time, the investigation is still ongoing. The Pope County Sheriff's Office is following all necessary protocols regarding this officer-involved shooting, Wiley said. The Bureau of Criminal Apprehension will release the other officer names and details on conclusion of their investigation. He asked people to respect the privacy of the Owen family and all others involved in the incident. The Minnesota Department of Public Safety and the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension offer their deepest condolences to the family of Deputy Owen, his friends and co-workers. Deputy Superintendent of Investigation Services, Matt Mueller said, What we know now is that approximately 7.30 p.m., two Pope County deputies and a Starbucks police officer responded to a domestic assault call at an apartment in the 400 block of Stroman Street in the city of Cyrus, 
When they got there, they went into the home, and after some initial investigation, they informed a man at the home he was under arrest for domestic assault. The man drew a firearm and immediately began shooting it at the officers. In the ensuing exchange of gunfire, the man and all three officers were struck. Life-saving efforts were given to Deputy Owen and the male subject. The male subject died at the scene, and Deputy Owen was transported to Glacial Ridge Hospital, where he later died. The BCA recovered a handgun that was located near the male subject and numerous cartridge casings and other evidence. All officers present were wearing body-worn cameras, which captured video during the incident and will be released at the appropriate time, Muller stated. In 2023, there have been seven law enforcement officers shot in the line of duty in Minnesota alone. This is an alarming trend, he said, that needs to stop now. Did the BCA have information on the apartment being the source of calls in the past? Mueller was asked at the news conference. He said his agency did not know if it had been. He added it did know that the man who died at the scene had been in the state for less than a year. These officers put on a badge every day, committed to going out to the public to protect the citizens of Minnesota, putting their lives on the line for that, Mueller said. They're committed to that. They will not stop doing that no matter what they face. The Pope County shootings that happened after two officers were killed during a traffic stop in Barron County, Wisconsin, on the same day as their funeral of the two officers. Last week, a police officer was shot and wounded while serving a search warrant in Granite Falls in western Minnesota. Josh was one of the most capable and dependable deputies one could hope for, Swift County Sheriff John Holt said on the office's Facebook page. He had worked with Owen when he was in the county sheriff's staff. His dedication to being a police officer was only rivaled by his dedication to his family. Personally, he was genuinely a good person whom a bad word was never spoken about. His fierce friendship and easygoing attitude will be forever missed. We are devastated and heartbroken and send our prayers to Josh's family. The other officers involved all Pope County police officers, and everyone who shares the pain of Josh's passing. Deputy Owen's dedication and service to his community as a police officer and to his country as a soldier is immeasurable. We will be forever grateful knowing Deputy Owen. We will miss you, Josh. Rest easy, brother. We have the watch from here, Holt said. Today's show is dedicated to Deputy Josh Owens. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve in our military from the birth of this great nation through today and into our hopeful future. We dedicate to them this song by Tiffany, Soul of the Nation. May God bless each and every one. And take a few moments this weekend to remember those who gave their lives in defense of this nation and of the people within it. May God bless each and every one.
Global Enlightenment Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, Speaker, YouTube, Facebook, iHeartRadio, and half a dozen other places that I have no idea. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your host, just with the least most, just the radio ticket D, and my special guest co-host, the one, the only, the magnificent, the most gorgeous lady ever, Lucretia Hughes. A oh. real talk. Good afternoon, Lucretia. Good afternoon, <laughs> Go ahead, everyone. I'm full of it. Thank you. <laughs> oh, no, you just made me blush. That was it. <laughs> Thank you well, so much because great... uh, flattery will get people everywhere. I'm just saying. <laughs> and people can find your show, Real Talk, up on Facebook, correct? And also on your website, LucreciaHughes.com. And it's Hughes with the It e is uh, Fallback, Fallback Production Studios, LLC. And then also we're on all the social media platforms, so they can find this there. All right. Well, we've got ourselves a fantastic guest, Richard North Patterson. He is the author of two dozen books, uh, has never had a problem. He had 16 of them as a bestseller, New York Times bestseller. And lo and behold, uh, he did something that's not woke, and he wrote a book that he shouldn't have written. How dare you, Richard? You write, wrote a book called Trial, coming out on June 13th. How dare you buck the trend? You're such a well, bad boy. Well, it was really difficult, although the, my real challenge is I wish, given your description of Lucretia, we were on television, my gosh. Um, <laughs> sounds gorgeous. Uh, but, yeah, it was, uh, uh, it was interesting. I mean, I, I, over you know, the years between 2015 and 2021, I wrote a lot of columns about American politics, and it occurred to me that so many of them were infused directly and directly with our problems of race. So I decided to write a book uh, which, you know, raised the most difficult racial issues that we faced. And I wrote a story which centered on a black 18-year-old voting rights worker charged with capital murder in the fatal shooting of a white sheriff's deputy after a nighttime traffic stop in rural Georgia. But here the problem starts. Two of my three major characters are black, the defendant and his mother. Um, and... Um, it deals with problems which, although they should concern us all, uh, affect minorities in particular. And what I ran into was that among Manhattan publishers these days, their idea of um, racial sensitivity is that white people should not be allowed to write through the perspective of, 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 of black characters or about problems which affect them in particular. And I have a real problem with that. Well, you no, have no, my permission to write about the black community. You have my permission to write about the black community. My son was shot point blank in the head at a Domino's table. So bring awareness to the black community, but it's pretty much everyone's community. Well, I mean, that's right. I mean, you know, we should be able to try not only as a literary matter, but as a social matter to empathize uh, and imagine across the lines of, of racial identity. Nobody told me, by the way, among all the publishers who were afraid of this book, there was any way racial, racially insensitive and, and obtuse. Rather, the problem was my identity. And here's the, the irony. In order to get this book right, I went down to rural Georgia where it said, I interviewed um, 50 people, a good half of them African Americans. And I listened to their story. I met them where they lived. And I heard about their own experiences. Um, not one of them raised the problem of race with me. 
Um, they wanted to um, tell me their story as accurately as I could in the hope and trust that I would translate it. The irony is that given the demographics of publishing in Manhattan, the people who were afraid of my book or rejected my book almost uniformly white and had no direct experience at all of what the Georgians, including black Georgians, shared with me over there through their own, about their own lived experience. So to me, it's a high of irony that these insulated people appoint themselves as the literary benefactors of black America. Um, it's, it's just antithetical to what literature should be. It, it is completely, and as Lucretia and I were talking prior to uh, uh, bringing you on, that the idea that an author cannot accurately depict a character, uh, no matter what their race or gender is, turns the entire idea of being an author on its head. Um, would Shakespeare ever include a Moor in one of his plays and accurately depict what was going on? Uh, Cervantes and in, uh, Don Quixote, or even the history of Cervantes uh, following him as he was doing his other writings. Uh, the, you have, throughout history, since the, the first thing was ever written, authors have been able to step out of their skin and write from a different perspective. And isn't the idea of, of putting out a book such as yours to open the imagination, to bring the reader into a whole new experience so they start to look at the world a little bit differently? That's that what exactly you're, you're the essence of what literature should be. It should allow people to step outside their own lives and imagine the lives of others with an empathy and insight that they would not otherwise have. I mean, look, my my audience, given the the demographics of America, is overwhelmingly white. Whether they think about problems of race very often as a matter is an elective. What I'm trying to do for all my readers, black and white, is bring an insight to them, which is fresh and it causes them to look at issues and. In a, in a different way. And what is the engine of literature if not imagination? I mean, that's the first element, uh, along with the ability to tell a good story, um, a psychological acuity, setting, narrative, all of that. But first of all, imagination. And that's not just a literary ma matter. I mean, I think the problem with our polarized society is we too often fail to imagine the lives of people we don't know personally. And so we uh, demonize them or reduce them to a cliché uh, devoid of individuality or humanity. And it's a terrible thing. Yeah, but that's Lucretia, you that's have exactly, that is exactly what society is. It's trying to erase the history. It's trying to make everybody equal. And one thing that never going to happen is that we're ever going to be equal that's not it's never going to happen so i don't know why everybody must all look the same think the same be the same and no one can step out of that box that the government has placed them in how do we change that with the literary what with what you're writing well i mean you know i'm making my one small effort uh based on, upon considerable work uh to you know, to contribute some greater humanity to our, um, you know, our stream of uh, of literature. Um, and it's ironic that in the name of anti-racism, um, you know, the publishers may hand practice kind of racism. They'd be the first to deplore um, the suppression of racial history, the banning of books. But they fail to look in the mirror and see that they're, in, in essence, that same person. 
Oh, did we just lose our guest? Nope, I'm here. I think so. Okay. Oh, I heard I heard a little a little dead air. That's why I'm I was just freaking out for a second. <laughs> Go ahead, Richard. I'm sorry. Oh no, no worries. I am I am here. Um, but as as I was saying, um, you know, it's ironic that people who purport to be liberals um, would suppress a book from being published and yet complain about the banning of books um, and the suppression of racial history by others. Um, and, I mean, I, censorship is wrong, period. Well, that's what it is. It is pure and simple censorship, but it's not the government doing it. It is the woke society. We now have this idea of wokeness. Um, how dare you uh, be intolerant of me because of my gender, my race, or whatever, but I can be perfectly intolerant of you. It's the, the rules for me and not for thee. It, it is an upside-down world, Lucretia, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's, it's very... I'm looking for an article that I read last night on the show, which the Joe Biden regime and the West execs said that our thought patterns, the way we thought, the way we think, the way we do everything, they're calling it now, and that the Joe Biden administration and also the United States government owns your thoughts. They're calling it cognitive infrastructure. So with the propaganda, the NDAA, the Patriot Act, everything that's been going on, the gaslighting, the lies, all of this stuff is literally a law that was put in by an executive order from the Biden regime, and they're calling it cognitive infrastructure. So they want to control the way you think, the way you act, the way you walk, the way you talk, because the government officially now owns you. Well, one of the, the uplifting things on a, uh, on a brighter note, I mean, first of all, I tried telling an exciting story about three people tracked in the vortex of a trial. Uh, and what happens to the young man who's the defendant, his mother, uh, and the white congressman who discovers, to his surprise, that the young man is his son. So on one level, it's a very human story. But on the issues that we're talking about, one real source of, of support has been Henry Louis Gates, uh, who is the chairman of the Black Studies Department at Harvard. And he's come out in strong support of my uh, freedom to write, and the value of this book. Um, and so in the midst of all this stuff, that's been very uplifting for me. Wow. That is that is fantastic. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you, you have a fantastic background. Uh, you, by training, are an attorney. You were assistant attorney general for the state of Ohio. Um, you've been a trial attorney for the Securities and Exchange Commission, and we're a liaison to the Watergate special prosecutor. Oh, man, do I remember those days pretty well, and now I'm dating myself. You know, and you've written articles for numerous publications, everything from the Huffington Post, uh, good Lord, to the Boston Globe. Uh, you've been on numerous shows, anything from Today to Greta Van Susteren. So when you're out there and you're talking to the public, you are a political and a legal commentator. So everything you're writing about in your book are things that you've had personal experience with. And yet you went above and beyond to go to the rural area of Georgia to talk to people, to get a feel of how to build your characters. So isn't that what a good author does? 
Well, I think so, and I'm a big fan of what they call social realism. And if you go back in literature, and you were talking about this before, I mean, people from Charles Dickens to um, to Mark Twain to Emile Zola to Tom Wolfe stepped outside their own identity, their own social milieu to investigate and look at the lives of others and then translate them for readers. Um, it's kind of a journalistic approach. Um, and that's why I tried to do, okay, you know, those guys were all white people of their time. But they also understood that to understand the life of others, they first of all had to, uh, to go to people and meet them where they live. And they did. Uh, and there's a rich, rich tradition there. And, you know, you were citing before, you know, Shakespeare and Othello. Well, where would we be if, say, we said, well, you know, Tolstoy can't write Anna Karenina. And Flaubert can't write Madame Bovary because they're men writing about women. Um, and so we would be deprived of two of the great classics of literature because the authors didn't fit in the right box. It's crazy. No, wow. and of course, one of my favorite is, as you heard before, Cervantes. And people are like, oh, Madame Blanc. But if you knew Cervantes' history uh, and how he actually lived uh, as a slave, believe it or not, and was able then to take that and create the Man of La Mancha because of what he experienced. You know, you you are taking out all of human existence and just boiling it down to bigotry. Simple as pure bigotry. Well, and, and, you know, and, and bigotry is not necessarily confined to any one slice of our society or any one ideology. Uh, as the publishers in Manhattan have proceeded to prove. And it's not just me. I mean, this has been going on for, for years. You guys probably remember the countries of American Dirt, where a white author, or mostly white author, uh, was pilloried for writing a book about a Mexican mother and son trying to make it across the U.S. border. Um, and the complaint, again, was primarily that she was appropriating the lives of others. Uh, of a of a different racial identity. Well, again, I mean, how many you know white authors? I mean, how many more books do we need by white authors about the angst and struggles of young white professionals in Brooklyn, Manhattan? Haven't we had about enough of that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what we need is a dose of reality, and I don't think the public really can accept reality. Uh, it, it doesn't fit into the new norm uh, that we're being given. And Lucretia, they started with the appropriation of um, you can't make, cook Chinese food because you're not Chinese, or you can't cook Mexican food because you're not Mexican. You can't you can't sell it. Uh, you can't open a, a, a Mexican restaurant if you are not Mexican. The appropriation idea. Uh, is where it started. They got the foot in the door, but now it's going into every fabric of our society. Well, well if you, you think about it, it's, it's, creative, it's creative segregation. Uh, it's sort of redlining us all into ethnic neighborhoods. Um, it's exactly the opposite of the progress we're supposed to be making in this country. Well, well go ahead, you can't Lucretia. destroy a company, and you cannot destroy a country if you don't segregate and separate people. So they got to figure out 
Because if we ever unite, everything that they're throwing at us, it's all going to fail. So if they can continue to separate us, they can continue virtual signaling you, telling you you can't write about the black community. Sooner or later, they're going to wear you down or wear people down, and they're just going to shut up, roll over, and play dead. Well, you know, what I said in, in an essay I wrote in this subject is we really don't need literary apartheid. We don't need a black literature Ooh. for black readers written exclusively by black authors or a white author, a white literature by white authors premised on a notion it's impossible, even arrogant, to deploy imagination across the lines of one's identity. I mean, what we need is an American literature uh, which liberates the creative gifts of diverse uh, writers who make a conscious effort to cast off the blinkers of their personal identity and examine the lives of others. I mean, only then are we going to have a fiction uh, that really speaks to the best of us. Well, you have an excellent editorial you wrote um, April 21st in the Wall Street Journal dealing with this subject. And the paragraph I highlight, I have only one paragraph, no, lots of paragraphs I highlighted with notes all over the place. Um, You wrote in this one, uh, people are free to dislike any book on whatever basis they choose. But to repress books based principally on authorial identity is illiberal, intolerant, ignorant of the ways of creativity. And I'm sorry, I do have a stuttering problem, so sometimes some words I can't (laughs) pronounce. Inimical to the spirit of pluralist democracy. And I do a radio show, too. Think about that one. As the (laughs) scholar Henry Louis Gates Jr. has admonished, Social identities can connect us in multiple and overlapping ways. They are not protected but betrayed when we turn them into silos with centuries. Freedom to write can thrive only if we protect the freedom to read and to learn. Wow. Well, I mean, in, in, you know, in, in Henry Louis Gates is precisely right. By the way, I should mention to your to your readers because I've been remiss. The name of the book is Trial. Um, uh, very easy to remember. It's coming out June 13th. Uh, you can uh, pre-order it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or from your favorite bookstore. But also, um, because I've run into this uh, uh, roadblock, I mean, I found an independent publisher willing to publish me. But together, we are releasing about half the book in ex- excerpts on Substack so that people can judge it for themselves. I mean, I'm willing to stand by my own work. So if you go to richardnorthpatterson.substack.com, um, you can find what we're talking about. And then judge for yourself. Um, if you think the book is exciting, if you think it's moving, if you care about the characters, uh, and if you think it's fairly written. That now, is can you absolutely tell everybody fantastic. where we can actually get that? Is it on Kindle? Do we go to Amazon, or do we go straight to your website? No, you can go right to Amazon. Uh, the books, you can pre-order it. It comes out June 13th, or it's at Barnes & Noble. Or you can go to your local bookstore if you have a favorite bookstore and say, just order this book for me. It'll pop up on, on, uh, on June 13th. Um, and if you want to have a preview, then you can go to richardnorthpatterson.substack.com. You know, there is a link on the show page because we do get a lot of hits in the archives, people turning in to listen. And as they're reading the description as they're listening, they click on Trial, the name of your book, and it'll take them straight over to the Amazon website. 
Well, that's terrific. Um, yeah, that I cover all bases. You, well, you <laughs> sure do. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny because with all the books, now this is, I believe, book number 24. Uh, that would be right. Wow. Yeah. Now, yeah. Well, well, Curtis, I think, is up to book number 24, my co-host, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> not to the, the, to the level that you're at. Uh, but you did previously write a book called Exile back in 2007 about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And no one gave you a hard time about that. But now you stepped out of your lane, and how dare you appropriate a different culture and race. Uh, the woke society, as you were saying, needs to have us divided in order to conquer. And, Lucretia, you know, you've heard me say this many times. We are no longer a multicultural, no, no, a melting pot, which is what our immigration system was based upon, what our nation was founded upon, a melting pot. Now they have the multiculturalism, so everyone stays in their lane, and then they can pit one side against the other. Now, yeah. we have, you have to feel awful you you have to do penance and reparations because you were born white and now you owe me because i wasn't Uh, they pit us against each other instead of allowing us to learn about each other to blend with each other and to be friends and family with each other that they're tearing that apart and that's the best way to tear our nation apart am i looking at this right or wrong richard no, you're looking at exactly right. What you and I owe each mm-hmm. other uh, is openness, uh, interest, uh, imagination, and a willingness to understand what your life experiences have been. We all owe that to each other. I mean, and if you think about it, we spend our entire lives trying to understand people who are different from us, starting with people in our own family, uh, for Lord's sake. Uh, because <laughs> no, two, no two people are alike. Now, when I write about, say, a charismatic black woman who is one of our principal characters, I have an obligation to try to understand what she is actually like. So uh, I, I talk to all sorts of people to get my Allie Hill right. Um, I have her portrayed as a uh, senior at Harvard in 2003. So I, I found three black women who had gone to Harvard in 2003. I asked them everything I could about what that experience was like. I went to Georgia in a place like where Allie Hill would have lived, and I found out what the life historically and contemporaneously had been for black people in that county. I went to the leading um, the leader of the leading voting rights group in Georgia, because Allie's a voting rights group leader. And I asked her what her experiences were like, both personally and professionally. Um, because mom, because she's a, a mom, I went to black moms and asked them about their, their particular fears uh, for their black sons and how they tried to protect them. I did everything I could to understand what her life would be like. Um, and I think without going through that kind of formal process, we owe that kind of interest to other people in the society. And to the extent we're discouraged from having it, or say we can't understand them or shouldn't bother them, as you say, that polarizes our society further. Yep. And I'm going to say, with this presidential race heating up, we're going to see even more because they're going to throw everything at us to divide us and conquer us. 
And um, I'm glad we're having this conversation because they have to realize, I want the listeners to see that they're wrong. We have more in common than we have different. And yep. Lucretia, you, you're a strong woman of faith, as I am. I mean, we've been friends for for a while here. And I've always asked this question when they try to play the white guilt, and I'd say, does God make mistakes? No, God Never. doesn't make mistakes. He has chosen you and I to be here at this time for a reason. And it's up to us to determine what that reason is and live up to his expectations and hopes. And that's what, that's what Richard is doing. He's reaching out. He's, he, you're always saying, hey, listen, we need to understand each other, and this is a way to start the conversation. And it's a conversation that needs to be had to find where we are common, not where we are more different. Well, that's really right. I mean, you guys have chosen to be friends and colleagues. How much better off are you because of that? A lot, I would argue. Um, yeah. Well, she owes know, me and, a drink, so. <laughs> and, yeah, and I have I have friends of all sorts of different identities, and I can assure you that my life is richer, and my understanding is richer because of it. My old saying, and, and this is, I hope my grandkids, because I'm a grandmother of nine, so I'm hoping my grandkids pick it up. If we do not have to spend eternity in heaven with these people, why are we spending a little time on earth? That's the way I put it. So if they're hell on earth, they're definitely not going to be welcome to heaven. So since hell is all inclusive and there is no, you don't have to go through anything and everybody is welcome, at least heaven has a gate. Well, well I, indeed, I and, and we, you know, every every 15 minutes, we're 15 minutes closer to heaven or wherever we're going. So we better make the best use of it while we're here. Amen. Well, I'm trying to remember how I usually say this because I recently covered up my gray hair. <laughs> I've got a milestone birthday happening next Saturday. Uh, even I'm just telling Medicare, stop calling me. Stop calling me, Medicare. Anyway, um, I'm too old at this point in my life to have patience to put up with fools. And Ooh. that's what we got. And Lucretia, don't you dare make a T-shirt out of that one. You're thinking about it. I know what you're thinking right now. <laughs> That's a nice T-shirt design. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking, I mean, speaking of getting old, I've got 43 years worth of book jackets, and I'll tell you the the direction is not encouraging. I mean, you look at those pictures and you think, boy, what happened to that boy? <laughs> you know what? You know what that means that you honored thy mother and thy father, and he prolonged your life because. Your path and, and your life, destiny, you're not finished yet. So I have no idea if it's 20 more books. I don't know if it's a nationwide tour or a worldwide tour. But so many people need to hear your point of view. They need to know that you are an author and that what you do. So keep on putting one foot in front of the other. And the rest of them, just don't play with fools. You'll be okay. Well, thank you. Between the good Lord and Medicare, I may just make it. <laughs> Yep. And stop calling me about Medicare. I've been on Medicare for quite a few years, <laughs> but even though I'm hitting that milestone now, and I earned that the hard way in the line of duty. Um, but I got to say, you know, you've got uh, 40 some odd years of, of book jackets, and I'm thinking uh, about 47 years ago, my first editorial appeared below the fold 
on July 4th, Bicentennial, uh, in the Long Island Press. At that time, there was, uh, there was the New York Times, Newsday, and the Long Island Press. And I'm happy to say, I straight out of high school one month, and I was below the fold on the Long Island Press. So, hey, listen, well, a, lot of, cool. a lot of words have passed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. But, you know, um, I was going to ask you some other questions now, and then made me go right through this. Oh, uh, you are also a trial lawyer, and mm. they're going forward with President Trump with these trumped-up charges, no pun intended on that one, uh, through uh, Alvin Bragg about him covering up a crime. But as a prosecuting attorney, like I said, you were an assistant attorney general in Ohio. How could you be prosecuted for covering up a crime that you have never been charged or convicted of? Well, um, they can, as, a, as a matter of law, they can do it. Um, I have to say that among the charges against Trump, this to me is the, sort of the least impressive. Um, um, you know, the, 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 what he is charged with otherwise is a whole lot graver. And it'll be very interesting to see uh, how these things uh, unwind um, as we go forward. Now, the other thing that made me a little bit curious is that in Florida, they had passed this law that resigned to run, they called it. So in order to run for office, if you're already holding an office in Florida, especially the governor, uh, you must resign from that office so there's no conflict of interest, basically, uh, so that you can concentrate on the job that the voters hired you to do. And now, in a fell swoop, they overturned that, which he signed yesterday into law so that he could run for president. Uh, What do you see happening with that? Because I already know that already the NAACP and another organization have already filed charges. uh, I'm sorry, looking for an injunction to get that overturned or something to that effect. Where do you see this going with DeSantis in Florida? Oh, I I suspect that that he will uh, get by with it. I suppose the argument is that the state is enhanced by having a politician move up in this world. I agree with you that that it's fair to say DeSantis will not be paying a lot of attention to his day job um, um, going forward. uh, but I don't think anybody's going to get in his way legally. Uh, you know, we'll see what happens between him and Trump and whoever else is in the race. Yeah, because um, well, I understand now uh, the mayor of uh, Miami is possibly throwing his hat in the ring. So it's going to be a very interesting field out there. Go ahead, Lucretia. I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm sorry. You would think after he made his huge announcements without the glitz and the glamour and on Twitter with all, you know, you know, the bugs and everything, that he would get a bump in the polls? Well, he didn't, which is shocking to me. I really thought that they was going to pit DeSantis and Trump against each other, and Trump is just going to be Trump with his 34 copy and paste uh, indictment charges. But also I would figure that DeSantis would have a huge bump in the poll, but he's still 20 points behind Donald Trump. Well, it doesn't help when your Twitter debut melts down, does it? Um, you know, um, you know that was an unfortunate embarrassment. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to stray away from 
my book too much in, into political commentary, but I will say that um, you know we all, I, at least I remember Richard Nixon. Uh, whatever you, you made of Richard Nixon, he was not noted as the most charming person in the world. Um, <laughs> no. And DeSantis <laughs> suffers from that same um, uh, deficit. Um, you know, I, as it happens, uh, I have my real problems with Donald Trump, but he did say something funny when he said what DeSantis needs is a personality transplant, and I don't think that's been invented yet. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it, it, it um, should be very interesting, and I, I'd love to see your new book coming out uh, June 13th called Trial, that people can get it on mm-hmm. Amazon and other bookstores near you. Uh, also, click on the link on the show page. Um, and now I just forgot what I was saying. I was doing a plug for the book, and I completely forgot what I was going to say. No, but it was oh, good. God, Keep on. That's great. <laughs> Oh man, but it, it it is a conversation we need to have, and I think this election period coming up is the perfect time for it uh, to help start to unite the people of the United States of this country and move us forward out of this wokeness that is tearing us apart. Um, I was reading uh, already. Uh, New York City has. Uh, frozen the accounts, and I believe it was in Keystone Bank and the other one, Capital One. Now, I've got an account in Capital One. So the first thing I did was go online to make sure I could still access my funds because they weren't following the woke agenda that New York City put out there for them to follow. Uh, this wokeness has been costing a lot of companies uh, big bucks if they follow it. And now you've got... Uh, all these two dozen New York City publishers that just canned your book, but I'm willing to bet no sooner does it debut, you're going to be back on the New York Times bestseller list because of it. I think it's going to mm-hmm. backfire on them. Well, and they're going to I, wish they know, had a piece I, I of that pie. I certainly hope so. And on a larger you know, issue, um, because this issue is, of course, way bigger than the fate of trial or any individual author, I mean, I hope that we have an awakening to the fact that um, you know, censoring books based upon the author's identity goes to the bad old days that we're all trying to escape. Um, and that, um, you know, if you censor somebody because you don't like their ideas, they can censor you because they don't like yours. And where does that spiral take us? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Richard, it has been a pleasure having you with us, and people can find you at richardnorth.substack.com. Uh, richardnorthharrison.substack.com, but who's counting? <laughs> they can also, if they're listening to the show, click on the title of your book, Trial, and be taken straight over to Amazon and pre-order it for its June 13th release. Well, thank you. This has been really fun, as you promised, and it is. You never know, and everything I do is off the top of my head, unscripted, as Lucretia will tell you, and the same as her show. So, Lucretia, you got yourself another guest to book on your show. Here you go. I'm handing them you over to you. <laughs> Absolutely. I would love to have you on there. It is The Real News with Lucretia Hughes. It's five to seven, five nights a week. And we take articles from all around the world and, and what you're talking about. And if it goes against God, family, country, I rip them a new one. 
<laughs> well, be fun, Lucretia, <laughs> so just let me know. Absolutely. Right. Thank you so much. All right. You all take right. care now, and have a great Memorial Day weekend. You have too. a very great one and a safe one. All right. Richard North Patterson, check out his book over on Amazon called Trial. And we've got our next victim up in here in the studio. Let's welcome aboard. Uh, we want to welcome, uh, I would say Richard, Chadwick Moore, who has a new book that's going to be coming out uh, in uh, July. I keep on wanting to say August. Uh, July uh, 18th, I believe it is. And it's called Tucker. Now, I don't know... Uh, Chadwick, if um, AJ sent you the message, I have a completion to the title of your book, which my co-host, my guest co-host, Lucretia uh, Hughes of The Real News, um, has loved. It's going to be called Tucker, From Bowtie to the Beltway. How does that sound? <laughs> I like that. I like, you should have been on our uh, marketing team. <laughs> well, call me up next time. <laughs> well, I got to say, my late husband and I had been a fan of Tucker's for a while. And, you know, sometimes he hit us a little bit off the wall. And I remember him with the iconic bow ties, which heralded back to his school days. And we always made fun of them. But it was it was his trademark. And then all of a sudden he showed up on screen one day wearing a regular tie. And it's like, uh-oh, I think his wife got a bug in his ear or something. But did he ever tell you why he switched from bow ties to regular ties? This always, I, I'm sorry, it's a really off-the-wall question, but why? He, he did, actually, and I'm glad you asked. He told me that, uh, so he, as you said, he'd been wearing them since uh, his boarding school days. His father also used to wear a bow tie. His father was a great influence in all things in his life. And uh, one day he was at some function in Washington, D.C., and uh, somebody came up to him and said, I love your bow tie. That's a good branding device. And he said he was so horrified that people thought it was a branding device. He stopped wearing it that day and never wore it again. (laughs) I'm just wondering if that was the one where he had the tuxedo with the bow tie on it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Now, you had unlimited access to Tucker Carlson. You were just following him around. How, How did you do this? So, yeah, so we just, he was so open. This is an, uh, I'm an independent biographer, so Tucker uh, has not seen anything in the book. He hasn't asked to see anything. I've had total editorial independence. But he's been an open, an open book, as you would say to me, and he's been, made himself available whenever I wanted to call him up or hang out with him. So, you know, we just scheduled some time for me to spend time with him, a um, couple weeks uh, in his home in Florida and another um, in his place in Maine. And uh, just really got to know him, got to know his family, his wife, his father, his coworkers, and uh, it was a really great experience. Oh wow! Yeah, now uh, he's got an interesting family background. Um, his father was dumped into an orphanage uh, because his parents were too young. Um, his father was then raised by a, another family that gave him his last name. Uh, and into this background, he came out as a prominent individual, uh, a gonzo journalist. Later on, I believe he was an ambassador, uh, was it to the Seychelles? Uh, I forget where he was, but he yeah. was mm-hmm. in, in government. Uh, and into this, Tucker was brought with his brothers. And it was an interesting life for these boys to grow up in. 
Yeah, it was. And uh, and you're right. Uh, so Dick Carlson, who's still with us, he's 82 years old, really fascinating, colorful, great guy. Uh, he worked for the Reagan administration first as a director of Voice of America and then under uh, George H.W. Bush's ambassador to the Seychelles. And, uh, but before that, um, so Tucker's mother um, abandoned the family when Tucker was six years old, and he hasn't seen her since. As she passed away in 2011, having not seen her since she was six years old. So for most of his childhood, it was Tucker's father did remarry to a wonderful woman named Patricia, but really it was, it was Dick and the boys, uh, Tucker and his brother Buckley, and they were a very uh, tight family unit. And I think that, um, you know, having, having growing up, if you're in a single-parent household, you really bond with that one parent who's around. And that seems pretty clear with um, both boys and their father. Yeah. Now, Tucker has an interesting background because he was a television uh, journalist and commentator before he ended up, you know, he was also a columnist and a writer with a varied background. And for a while, you basically couldn't quite, put a finger on what his politics were. He was deemed himself as an independent. He was a registered Democrat, uh, which is uh, quite unusual. But there was a reason why he was a registered Democrat, wasn't there? Well, he, you, you might know something different than I do. I, I've sort of uh, known that he was he's always sort of a very civil libertarian kind of guy. And, and he was a, a big debater, you know, and everyone from his, his, um, his uh, high school remember him as, as being this debate club spectacle that everyone would show up to join. And he loved just taking both sides and arguing. Uh, and, but he's always been a kind of live and let live guy. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, hating the beltway and corruption. Uh, he had a big, big turning point against neoconservatism in the, during the Iraq war when he went to Iraq to, to write an article for Esquire magazine. That was when he really started turning against the establishment, especially the, the neoconservative establishment. Well, this is this is this is the story that I heard uh, when he turned around and was registered as a Democrat. He was living in the D.C. area, and it was his excuse to be able to vote in the in the mayoral election in D.C. And that's why he registered as a Democrat, even though he was a libertarian. Right. Yeah. 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 I did know that, and that's a pretty common in big liberal cities. You maybe vote for the lesser of two evils. <laughs> you know, Democrats going to win anyway. Because <laughs> you know, a Republicans not even going to enter the race. Why? Why? Why waste the money? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but your, your book, which is coming out, Tucker, and maybe we'll see the subtitle, which you'll credit me for, from Bowtie to the Beltway. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know uh, what what part of the book do you feel that we we uh, as you you know that my co-host and I are conservative Christian conservatives would we find most fascinating about Tucker? Well, I think it's just seeing him off camera behind the scenes, which is I really wanted to capture who this person was and what he's really like off camera, and um, and what are the things that he's really interested in. And, you know, I think, I think one of the greatest things to see is how um, his home life, that he's got his marriage with his wife, Susie, is just really incredible. They've been together since they were 15 years old. Um, they're just so loving, and, and they really have a very strong family. And, and same with he, his relationship with his father and his brother still. I think it was great to see the sort of breadth of person that he is outside of television and politics, the sort of things he cares about and wants to talk about. You know, he loves nature. He's very spiritual without being overtly religious. 
he he you know believes in God, he believes in good and evil, and he just has a very interesting and and also very hilarious take on anything you want to ask him about. And when and and you know most of the times that we were hanging out in his kitchen just just talking, uh, the conversation would turn in the most entertaining and unusual places. And I, and I was just felt so blessed that I had an opportunity to write this book and to be there for all that. Well, he has an iconic laugh. And you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm waiting to read the book, I'm dying to read the book. I want to see if you do capture his, his iconic type of a laughter he has. Uh, but recently there was a woman that made an allegation over at Fox News of harassment. And if Tucker was anything like what you're describing and what the viewers see, because you know, there's certain things you can't hide. Uh, if you're arrogant, sooner or later that's going to show up on camera. Uh, if you're someone who's laid back and finds humor very easily, the camera's going to pick that up also. So when she made this allegation of harassment, I had to stop, take a step back, and I said, that doesn't seem to be right, not from the type of person that we're seeing on TV at night. Right, yeah, and that woman, Abby Grossberg, was her name, I believe, she'd never even met him. Uh, she was making $140,000 a year as a booker, and her um, allegations of harassment were actually quite funny and kind of fit in with the office culture that I got to know, which were one time she walked in and someone had hung up a picture of that picture of Nancy Pelosi in a plunging swimsuit. So they put it in the office as a joke. She felt that was sexual harassment for some reason. And another time she claimed that uh, during Christmas, one of the staffers, brought in a bunch of inflatable Christmas trees and put them in the office and then put one next to her bush, uh, next to her desk and wrote Hanukkah bush on it. Uh, she claimed that was anti-Semitic. I think that's probably not, but the, the, the lawsuit, is, or I don't know if the lawsuit, the allegations itself um, are kind of testament to the, exactly the sort of things that Tucker railed against on his show, which is um, this, you know, authoritarian, hypersensitive culture. This woman's motivation is anyone's, anyone, is anyone's guess why she's doing that. But I will say what you were mentioning earlier, you know, one of my favorite things that he said to me was uh, he said that, you know, he, he makes sure that on his commute to work each night he can see the stars. In Maine, he commutes by, by boat. And in Florida, he has a little golf cart he drives to the studio and, or drove to the studio where he, he removes the, um, the top off of it. And he said he does that because he wants to – because – his job on television is to, you know, be God. People believe he's, he's tell you how things are. He's right. You're wrong. That's the job of every television personality. If they don't encompass that, they don't have a good career. But he said he does that because he wants to be reminded. He wants to be able to look up at the stars every night and be reminded that he's not God and that he doesn't matter. And he really does has spent, I think, his entire career reminding himself of that. Uh, he's had a lot of mentors along the way who told him. You know, once you start to get big, don't become a jerk, basically. And I think he's really taken that to heart. And his dad was another person that taught him that. His dad was also on television. So he really does um, – you're, you're right when you, your observation about um, it would come through on the television. And, and I think that, you know, he's very much the person he is on TV. And Except I think on TV he's a little toned down. He's even more animated in real life, which is nice to see. <laughs> wow. Uh, Lucretia, step in here anytime. Please do. Now, you were with, were you with him through this dismissal coming off of uh, Fox News? So I was actually physically with him when these text messages were getting released, and then wow. uh, yeah, and so I was I was around observing all of that. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, so my book was actually finished um, end of March, and I had another call scheduled with him 
the week of his show getting canceled, just tidying up, you know, had a few loose end questions. And then, of course, this happened. So I've spoken to him. I've interviewed him twice since the dismissal. I've updated the book with a couple of new chapters all about that. Uh, but he was, at first, you know, um, I, I was a guest on his final show, which nobody knew was going to be his final show. I was a regular on the show for basically the entire run. That was um, April 21st was the last show. Monday morning, uh, he had filed his monologue for that day. Everything was, it was just a normal Monday. And then he got a call from Fox News President Suzanne Scott, who just said, we're pulling your show off the air. Thank you very much. Goodbye. He had no idea wow. why. They didn't give him a reason why. He was left to speculate. When I spoke to him about a week after that, he was still guessing. Um, now he, he thinks he knows why. <clears throat> but he was um, just left in the dark. And Fox News is still not giving him any kind of official answer. Uh, I mean, the president, the Fox president. So um, he was uh, – he's in high spirits, though. He has high self-esteem. You know, I think that what he's most upset about is that he – just wants to work. He loves his job. You know, he doesn't feel badly because he told me that he knows he didn't do anything wrong. It's not like he, you know, had to go to rehab or something. He said, I didn't do anything. If, if that were the case, and he's also 30 years sober, but he said, if that were the case, then, you know, I would feel bad if I knew I'd, I'd done something to hurt people or done something wrong, but he said, I didn't. So how can I feel bad about it? Yeah. Plus, he's laughing all the way to the bank because they have to still keep on paying him until they terminate the contract. That is when he's you know that. How do you think Fox News feel because they lost a billion dollars and right when they fired him that day? So what? I, so what I was told from my sources is that they had no idea that the executives who made this decision basically didn't understand what they had on their hands. They didn't, they were, they were, this person said that they're completely out of touch with their audience and they essentially thought they were just getting rid of like Harris Faulkner on Outnumbered. Like they didn't understand that Tucker was a brand that was as powerful as theirs, if not more powerful. They knew he was the number one star, but they thought, you know, we got rid of Bill O'Reilly. We were fine. We'll be fine after this. So that, that was their thinking in doing this in, in terms of rationalizing um, the fact that he was so popular and whether or not they could get rid of him, I was told. Uh, now, whether or not they will recover is yet to be seen because Tucker brought in an audience that number one, Fox didn't have and number two, all of cable didn't have, you know, the, he was number one in 18 to 49 year old viewers, both Democrats and Republicans. So he really attracted people to Fox and to cable who wouldn't normally, um, be viewers, and and maybe those people are now not going to come back. Maybe they're there just for him. Well, you know, he had sometimes an unorthodox way of looking at things because uh, he was highly critical of Trump in some of his decisions. He's been highly critical of of neoconservatives, and rightly so, um, in their decisions and things. And he took heed for that. And recently, he was taking heat for his support of Vladimir Putin. Um, when you were interviewing him, did you go into these issues uh, as he was taking heat and going against what is mainstream? Yeah. So among those uh, text messages were, were comments he made to colleagues about Trump, which I took in the text messages, reading them as just sort of heat of the moment stuff. But, of course, you know, I asked him about uh, a lot of people are trying to paint that as, you know, he's a hypocrite. He doesn't believe anything he says. But, you know, I asked him, he talked to me at length about what he thinks about President Trump, which I put basically every word of it in the book. And, you know, he had, he had really entertaining, really funny stories to tell about Trump. 
And then he also was critical of him where he felt he deserved to be criticized. And um, with, with, you know, certain issues like, um, you know, the, the war in Ukraine, you know, he's, he's very much against interfering there. People say he's a puppet of Putin for that. Other people say other things. Um, but he is he's, he's someone who, he, you know, he said to me once that his, he, he's proud to not have the answers, but his, his job is that he's a professional observer. And that's just what he does. He's, he's, I, just observe, I observe things. I see patterns. I make connections. And I called out. I, I'm not. I'm not God. I mean, before I don't know everything. And he, you know, he said something along the lines of the beginning of wisdom is knowing that you don't know as much as you think you do and that you really aren't that wise. So that's sort of how he sees himself. And as someone who's always come from journalism, you know, he started off before television as a magazine writer and he's very, very literary. And that's something I loved about him and could really, you know, connect to him with, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of sees himself as that old school journalist of I'm here to observe and report. You know, um, your book, Tucker, is going to be coming out uh, in July, but you also have a previous book. And when I was reading the description of the previous book, I am going to get it and give it to my sister. Uh, my <laughs> younger sister uh, is an attorney, and she's now she's living in Georgia. Even her practice is up in New York, so she does everything via teleconference. And they forced her to go to diversity training. Wow. And now this falls directly into the book that you wrote, because I was reading a part of it, an excerpt, which is, I'm telling you, I'm going to get the book and give it to her, because her birthday is two weeks after mine, and my birthday is next Saturday. So it'll have plenty of time to get to her. And if I can, maybe get a copy autographed by you. That'd be even a better birthday gift for her. See how much, you know, power I have and pull. But the book is called (laughs) So You've Been Sent. Nice little plug there, right? So you've been sent to diversity training, smiling through the DEI apocalypse, which is also available on Kindle. And uh, I don't know if AJ told you, but I am retired NYPD, and you were describing a scene in the police academy. And um, I've been out long enough where I went to the one at 2nd Avenue, not the one in Queens. And... Mm -hmm that you had was so surreal it's like I couldn't even imagine trying to sit through that BS <laughs> so we had a saying uh, we had the saying blue is blue I don't care what your your preference is what your race is what your religion is I don't care you're wearing blue you got my back that's all I care about and we go home safe at the end of the day so this idea of racial division and also now you have to have diversity training so you can deal with the fellow cadet. And then you've got a transgender person coming. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What does this have to do with actual policing? <laughs> right. How does absolutely. it help me dodge a bullet? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And happy birthday, first of all. And also, secondly, thank you for, for you know, taking interest in that book. Um, but, yeah, I have a whole chapter on the NYPD, which is – you know, very, everything you just described about the NYPD is similar to the U.S. military. And I have another chapter where their training was even more insidious because, of course, it's under the federal uh, umbrella and the Biden administration has turned their sort of DEI training into like an anti-white supremacy Nazi awareness training, which is very freaky and weird. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was uh, – so that book was, you know, it was just I, – I hope to have a lot of fun with it. There's also a lot of things to be horrified about these DEI things. But, you know, I'm a big believer in – 
in, you know, ridiculing the left as much as possible and laughing at them because they hate it so much. And when I came up with the idea for that book, it was pretty much of like, this stuff is so laughable and so ridiculous. It's prime for parody and also, you know, shining some light on what's really going on. But it's just so absurd. Yeah. Oh, they want to box us into this wokeness uh, persona, which Lucretia and I were talking about with our previous guest. And they've come up with all these things, the ESGs that corporations are now kowtowing to, the DEI um, diversity training, uh, all these things. They're trying to tell us that there's something wrong with us, not with a minority of the people that get triggered if they break a fingernail, um, you can tell that I'm not politically correct. Uh, but however, I also grew up in a time where my high school guidance teacher turned around and asked me, what did I want to do, go to college or this or that? And I told him, well, I'm not sure. I was looking at this direction. I was looking at that direction. He says, my advice to you, and this is a true story. Mr. Hotchkiss was the uh, football coach and my guidance counselor, good combination for this person, um, he said, take secretarial courses and marry your boss. <laughs> and that was the generation <laughs> I grew up in. I love that. Consequently, <laughs> consequently, two years later, I had a degree in business administration uh, I had a business that I had bought into a travel agency, a storefront. I had 13 employees, and I was walking into the night course that he was in charge of. He was the administrator for the, the night school at the high school I graduated from. And he looks at me, and he says, Anne-Marie, you're taking my advice. You're going to take secretarial courses? And I said, no, Mr. Hotchkiss. I'm here to teach one of your courses. And his wow. jaw dropped. His jaw dropped. I was there to teach people how to become travel agents back in 1900. Yeah, when we didn't have computers in the office just yet. <laughs> oh, that's so I think I could put a whole chapter in your book. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but we, we got along. We, we came out just fine. You know, we're, we're raising generations of people that the least little thing will trigger them. And now, Lucretia, did you see the article now that um, the NAACP and some other organization got together, and if we don't wear pride uh, memorabilia, a T-shirt or something, carry something to show pride for Pride Month, um, we are a hate group. Did you know that? Well, hate on haters. I'll be a hate group. <laughs> I'm gonna we'll be a hate but, group. I'm fine with them. I'm fine with that. The rainbow I'm gonna remember what the rainbow was originally for and that God will not destroy the world with water, but it'll be fire the next time. Mhm. And and when Dorothy sang over the rainbow, she wasn't talking about Pride Month. She was talking about hope and, and promise. But uh, <laughs> but when it comes to Tucker Carson, because Tucker Carson, you know, I, I don't, I haven't watched television since since 2016, but I did get because my show, I pull articles and I did a lot of research on myself on Tucker Carson. Now, when Tucker really started speaking out, 
against what the mainstream media, the, the government was wanting to push, that's when I felt like they was targeting uh, of Tucker. And then also when Tucker was getting more ratings than majority of the other hosts on Fox News, I knew it was going to be the problem because you only have a handful that really will tell you the truth regardless of the consequences. And that Tucker Carson was one of them. He needs to have his own media uh, to me. He doesn't need to go and sign up with anyone else. His name is worth a billion dollars. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Yeah, absolutely. And he would have a huge, huge following wherever he goes, however he decides to set himself up. And he's got enough money at this point where he can set himself up. Even if he uses his own studio in his house, which, you know, in order to do the Fox News broadcast, he had to have something set up in his house that has got to be the, the best of the best equipment in there. And just get a good team around him and just start something new. But he's got to, he does have to get past breaking that contract, doesn't he? Uh, yeah, that's correct. So he's got, um, you know, I haven't seen the contract, but there's, you know, got to be all sorts of non-competes in there. And, you know, he's basically got to be silent right now, which is, uh, you know, Fox News has taken away his free speech, it appears, for the time being. Now, that well, probably could be challenged. Million dollars? Yeah, it's only $50 million on the contract if he wants to you know, break the contract. Would there be any other stipulations if he broke that contract and walked away from the $50 million? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I haven't seen it, and, and I have no idea what's in it. Um, but I imagine it, it probably could be more complicated than that. Um, I don't know if, how long the non-compete is there for. It could be like if you leave, you still can't go anywhere else for two years or something. A lot of contracts are like that. And his contract now, was two would... years. It was leaked online. The contra- His contract was kind of leaked a couple of days after everything blew up. So he has to wait like two years, $50 million, non-compete. But can he break that if he gets a better opportunity or he just don't want that $50 million anymore? Well, I think, interestingly, I think there's a case coming up in the Supreme Court dealing with exactly this that's meant to protect people from really, like, overbearing non-compete. I think I heard that recently, so maybe that could affect this coming up. But other than that, I'm, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. So what now, advice now, Tuck- would you give uh, Tucker Carson being around him so much? Because if you write in this, uh, his biography, you have a lot of secrets or you talk to him personally that some things you're not going to put in the book. But that now that you have his ear, how would you advise him in the months and the years uh, going forward? Oh, uh I mean, I don't think he needs it, to be honest. I mean, he pretty much, he's got a great team around him. His executive producer, Justin, left also. And a lot of people, a lot of his, he had about, he had, so he had three shows on Fox. He had two on Fox Nation and one, the, night, the nightly show. And that was about a team of like 25 people. A lot of those people left when they canceled the show because they feel that committed to him, which is also a sign that you have a, you're a good boss. And, and then there are others I know who are still at Fox who are trying to get out of their own contracts because they want to follow Tucker to whatever he's doing. So these are people with cushy jobs at Fox News that left in order to be with him. So they're confident he's going to do something good and that they will be, be able to earn a living on that. Uh, so that that's enc- should be encouraging for everyone. Well, he's, he's not a stranger for getting into startups. Because he did uh, have his his foot in the door with the Daily Caller that he helped to found. Um, 
so he does have experience in going out there and being his own self entrepreneur. Um, I, I think that's a good foot up from there. But the question is, I've been hearing that they don't want him speaking out because they don't want him supporting Trump. But what would prevent him from joining Trump on the campaign trail and, like, introducing him or giving him some sort of little commentary? He's not earning money, but he's keeping his face and voice out there. Yeah, uh, he uh, again. Yeah, I'm not sure how that affects his contract. He might be able to do that, it, and if he is in fact supporting Trump, uh, but um, I'm, I'm not sure. Mm. Mm. And nothing would stop him then also from being a guest because he's not being compensated on someone else's show too, right? Well, interestingly, most Fox personalities do have that. They can't appear anywhere unless it's Fox branded, but he did not have that because while he, his show was on Fox, he would appear on podcasts and give speeches all the time. But you'll notice that, that most Fox hosts, they don't do, they can't, they're not on camera at all unless it's Fox, and also they can't do books unless it's Fox, like Fox owns their soul. Um, so Tucker seems to have had a nice contract and get a lot of freedom, and that he was able to go out and do other things. Uh, so uh, he, you know, he announced that he was going to do a show on Twitter, and I believe the reason for that might be because Twitter wasn't included in his non-compete. Mm, yeah. That's interesting. Because I, I knew Fox had that in the contracts. Because first, Dan Bongino could no longer come on. Uh, David Webb could no longer come on my show. Uh, Pete Heskett could no longer come on the show. However, Judge Janine does not have that in her, in her contract. Because not only has she written out two books, but she's on, been on my show three or four times. And that's always fun, yeah. having the ex-cop and the ex-judge together. Oh, yeah, I bet. <laughs> Especially New Yorkers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's amazing what they will use to try to censor our free speech and how they will use, if it's not le- legal means, uh, wokeness. Um, and the... You know, uh, Lucretia, how you have been censored on various social networks, and I have been censored on social networks. We were discussing this earlier, how um, all of a sudden the algorithms they use cut my followers tremendously. And if it's not that, they actually then just ban you, like on YouTube. And we, t- we, yep. we wear those badges proud. Because we're not going to stop. and we're, not, we're, we're like Tucker. We know what we're fighting for. We have family members, loved ones, our legacies, what we see that's going wrong with this nation, and we see the neocons out there on both sides of the political aisle joining together and helping destroy us. So I am so proud of Tucker Carson. Uh, I don't feel bad for him not one bit. I just feel like the sky is the limit to and for Tucker Carson, and I just feel like now that he's out of Fox News, he can do whatever he pleases after the contract. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. right. Tucker Unleashed now. Oh, that's a, that's a good name for a show. Yeah, that is a perfect go. name for a show. See, we're coming up with all these great titles, and maybe we should be on your creative team there, Chadwick. <laughs> <laughs> I would love nothing more. <laughs> but you also know what it's like to be canceled because you were working on a magazine, and once they found out that you were a conservative, they kicked you off. Oh, yeah, I was blacklisted from everything. Um, I used to write for the New York Times. I used to write for a bunch of liberal publications. And I publicly came out as conservative. 
and uh, was immediately fired from all my jobs, lost all my friends, the whole shebang. So luckily enough, I've got family that's not insane, so I didn't lose any family members over it. Uh, but yeah, that was a, a right in the early, right after Trump was elected, actually. Do you still no, write I, news articles for independent people like myself and Annie? Mm. Well, I still write articles for sure, yeah. And I'm, now I write for The Spectator. Um, I'm a contributing editor there, and you can find articles there. Um, and occasionally I write for The New York Post, but they're owned by News Corp, so after this, maybe I won't anymore. Who knows? <laughs> Wait a minute. I'm looking you up now. Spectator. I'm looking I'm you up because if you are writing articles the way our show, my show works, is that I take news articles all around the world, and if it goes against God, family, country, or Trump, I rip them a new one. And now that I know that you write articles for the American Spectator, I'm snatching your articles tonight and reading them constantly on every every time you put up a news article and, and it's very poignant and I feel like that we need to talk about it, you're going to be now one of the news people that I go to to make sure that we don't bamboozle people that actually watches and listen to us. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Lucretia has her show. You do it from five to seven, five days a week with Dave, and um, you got to see her. Her chat room up on Facebook just explodes. Um, five to seven is where I'm making dinner for my mom, uh, and then my fiance and I slip out for a couple of cocktails and our dinners. So that's why you don't see me much anymore. Because uh, Lucretia, I didn't tell you I am now engaged at this age. <laughs> I never thought I'd go. Th- a third time around. <laughs> Divorce one, bury one. Now I'm going to see what I'm going to do with this one. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm all over the American Spectator. I'm snatching articles for the night show. Oh, spectator World. Spectator World, not the American Spectator. Okay, Spectator World. Gotcha. Yes. All right. Now, um, the cover that you have it has I have it up displayed up on the screen, and I will figure out how to do the video interview hopefully soon. Um, but I do have a little display up there with your smiling face and the two books up there, so people watching in the archives or even listening can go to the description also, click on the book uh, titled Tucker. And they can pre-order the book. So it's in Amazon. It's going to be offered on all the other uh, places, uh, Barnes & Noble and all the others also? Um, yep. And if you go to TuckerTheBook.com, then you can order from all those places. Or if you don't want to give Amazon your money, you can order directly from the publisher from that website. Wow. Fantastic. Fantastic. Man, it, it, it's, I would love to have you just one-on-one sit down with a couple of cocktails and talk about, you know, Tucker Carlson, because he seems like he's the everyday person that each and every one of us are. Uh, and a lot of times, you know, sometimes you stop and think about what he's saying, and you can find a kernel of truth in it. There are other times you say, well, I don't know, Tucker. I still got you see, He still has to explain to me Vladimir Putin uh, and the Ukraine. Uh, I'm just I'm not quite there yet. Uh, but normally, 9. 99.9% of the time, you are agreeing with him because he talks to you as the everyday man. Yeah, 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 for sure. And that's one of the reasons why I think he's so successful. I think that's why well, he's so He doesn't try to talk over us. He doesn't try to talk down to us. He tries to talk like he's sitting right next. If we talk about, we talk about Tucker. He is talking to people 
like he is sitting right beside them, and they've been friends for years. That is what I love, like about Tucker because he is so relatable. He is for the everyday man. He doesn't care what color you are, what nationality you come from, or your sex. He just wants to get you informed so you can do your own research and be just as smart as Tucker Carson. But it also, he doesn't make you feel stupid. And that's the one thing that he does in his presentations, Chad, that I'm dying to see how the book comes out, see if you capture that. Because he doesn't talk down to people. He talks in a manner that everyone can understand. Yeah, yeah, while also being, you know, charming and hilarious and, and having a good time at the same time. Well, like I said, that's an iconic laugh. The second you hear it, you go, that, oh, I know who that is. I don't even have to walk in the room and look at the TV. I know who's laughing. <laughs> There's just certain yeah. people that their, their personality just exudes. And in his laugh, it is there. And uh, I'm, I'm looking to see how you captured him because if you're talking and about him the same way I'm thinking that you're right, uh, it'll be a, a fun, fun book to read. And it would also be a lesson on learning how woke society is destroying our freedom of speech. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah and I, I appreciate that. I hope you two both really enjoy the book. Uh, it's out July 18th, and, uh, but pre-order now, like you said, and you can go to tuckerthebook.com and find all the links there uh, where it's available. And I also have to find out how I can get a signed copy of your diversity book to give it to my sister for her birthday. Uh, absolutely. Let's uh, let's talk privately now. We can work that out. I would I would love to do that for you. <laughs> I just oh, want my the pleasure. articles. <laughs> I said I just want the articles. So what I just posted because I'm over here looking and I'm looking. So what I'm going to talk tonight. One of the second articles that I'm going to read on my show is Pete Budaplug, plane, trains, and automobiles. Listen to his like this. I love you, dude. Your last <laughs> very last paragraph. Like Obama, but less gay, Pete is a smooth talker and easily charmed, unmarried, and childless women, but his hair isn't the only thing that's fake. That man ain't got a clue. I love you! (laughs) (laughs) I see that you're starting a whole new fan club here. (laughs) You're starting a whole new fan club here. So maybe you need to get your own podcast out there, Chad. Ooh. <laughs> maybe, Ooh. maybe. I, I haven't written many articles lately because I've been working on the book, but I'm, I'm going to be starting back up again really soon. So I hope you both enjoy them. <laughs> I that, here, here's the name of your show Get Mad with Chad. I love Ooh. it. Or a point of view. And I get a cut of the monetization. <laughs> 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 well, I'm glad I got you laughing. If people want to know more about you, is there a website people can uh, reach you at? Um, sure. Uh, ChadwickMoore.com uh, is my website, and up there I keep some clips and some videos of appearances with Tucker, and uh, and then you can also find me on Twitter, and, and then you go to TuckerTheBook.com to learn more about the book. Oh, fantastic. Well, good luck, and God bless you for the hard work you do. And you're welcome on the show anytime. You know, uh, what I'm going to do is start pulling up more of your articles and do like Lucretia does. Get a stack of them and get you to come back on so we can have some more laughs and giggles. I would love that. Thank you both very much, and God bless you as well. God bless you. All right, take care. You too. Chadwick Moore. Uh, check him out. The new book coming out in July, on July 18th, called Tucker. And go to ChadwickMoore.com to read more about him. Man, I, I, I'm, I'm telling you, 
I can't wait until my sister opens this book, Diversity Training. <laughs> She's going to be rolling on the floor laughing. What a I don't even know what that means. Can you explain to me what diversity training is actually supposed to be? <laughs> well, in the description, it writes, Bizarre theories on race, sexuality, and gender are no longer confined to the ivory tower. They're now an integral part of the workplace. Uh, he's one of the few writers with unflinching insight into the psyche of the left. He takes on the sinister and ridiculous dogma of DEI and asks, how did we get here? Who benefits from this? And is there a way out? And I, I, like I said, I was reading the excerpt he had about NYPD in the um, police academy, and it is hilarious. It is absolutely hilarious. But the, the sad fact is, it's also the truth. And this is what our society is now devolving into. Uh, diversity, DEI, ESGs. It's crazy. You know what? We are the gatekeepers of the next generation. Let's just uh, try to raise them the best way, inform them the, the right way, and they might depart, but they soon shall come back. Well, that, 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 that I hope for. That I definitely hope for. I pulled an article out, if I can figure out where I just slipped it, that I wanted to – that's not it. That's not it. What did I just do with it? I just mixed everything up. Don't you hate that? You know you had the article pulled aside, and all of a sudden now it disappears. <laughs> I hate that. You can do like my husband does, have like 50 uh, tabs open at one time trying to keep all this stuff together. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I just did with it. It had to do... Ah, I just I can't find it now. That is crazy. That is crazy. Do you know the gist of the article? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was about uh, the girl that took that uh, did not win the swim race because she lost to a transgender, and she's now the mother spoke out. So now she and the mother are now being ostracized and attacked and ridiculed publicly because she said, "Wait a minute, this is a guy." It's obviously a guy that just won this, and she would have won if it were not for the fact she was competing against a biological male. And for some reason, they cannot get into their head that your DNA does not change. The way your body is built because of your DNA does not change. You can do as much surgery as you want, but it doesn't stop the fact that a thousand years from now when they dig up your bones and they run a DNA test on it, oh, that's a man. I don't care if you had the best implants put on your chest. I don't care if you changed that little man in the boat down there. But biologically, your DNA is you're a man. And you're going to have different types of body strength than a woman has. You go and throw a punch at me, you're going to be hitting me a hell of a lot harder than I'm going to be able to hit you. It's a simple exactly. biological fact. And consequently, if you're a swimmer, you're going to have better upper body strength than a woman, and so you can have greater arm strokes, greater strength, greater speed. And a woman will always lose to you. No ands, ands, or buts. She can be, change herself from a woman into a man, but she's still going to lose to you. Because she's biologically still a woman. 
It doesn't matter. So what all the things we fought for all those years, you and I, growing up, going through women's liberation and watching the laws change to give us Title IX so we can compete in sports equally and get a fair share of the funding for our school athletics. Out the door. All the things we did. And I just don't know how all these women, all we heard is me too, me too, me too. You know, women's rights, women's rights. Three years later, now I can't play, I won't play make-believe. And this is what I don't understand. They always like, well, you don't accept me. You don't even accept yourself. So if you can't look in the mirror and accept yourself, why do you expect society must play alone with your mental illness? So you couldn't accept what God naturally made you as, so you hate him and you hate yourself so much that you're destroying the core person that you truly are, and you want the rest of society to fall in that same mental illness. I'm sorry, Miss Annie, I cannot do it, and I will not do it. Not only that, not only are they destroying this, this chance of them to win a race, it's not just about the race. It's about the future of that young girl who has probably spent most of her childhood training. Because a lot of these kids start at a young age, four, five, six years old, when the parent or a teacher or someone else in, in the neighborhood notices that child's ability and talent. So that young girl said, oh, I love swimming. And then they start to compete at a young age, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, going into high school. Now you got a chance for a scholarship based upon not just your academic but your athletic abilities that you've spent your whole young life honing. A future mm-hmm. female Tiger Woods, but to lose out to a biological male because, oh, they don't feel like they're in the right body. But instead of competing male sports, you take over female sports, you steal from them what is rightfully theirs. That scholarship, that chance to go into a college, to get a degree and compete probably even on a professional level, to get endorsements, all that possible future and career and, and income is forever gone because one individual feels that he is more of a she and he competing as a she can get that scholarship, can get that entrance to that female college that's now accepting him, can get those endorsements, uh, Budweiser, Adidas, shall we go on, um, can get that income and live the life they want without even paying an iota of attention or sympathy to the one that they destroyed. Not just one, but all the women that follow behind. That know what's the point? What is the point to even try when someone else is going to snatch it away from me? Why try? Maybe that's why they started giving out participation trophies because they knew that they were going to push this agenda and that the girls was going to be in an uproar. So why don't you go ahead and placate the girls and just give them participation trophies so we can go ahead and not recognize them for who they truly are, and that's women. That is a shame. And like I said, we spent so many years fighting to get the equality, to get the recognition, to be able to compete for these scholarships, for these uh, chances to play professional, for these endorsements, for these futures. We worked hard for that. 
and we thought we had it, only to find at the last second snatched out from underneath us. And if you look at it, it's, and I'm going to say this, it's people that in the later years that fought the struggle, that was on the front lines in the 50s, in the 60s, these are the same ones that forgot what they fought for in the beginning. So they are up there saying that, yeah, we don't mind the women fight me, uh, men competing against women. But what you burn your bra for? Why did you go through mm-hmm. all of that women's suffrage movement if you're going to turn around some decades later and erase everything that you fought for? Exactly. Exactly. You know, I, I go right back to my uh, my high school teacher. Hey, forget it. You're not going to have a future. There's nothing out there for you in the business world or in, in any other job or position. So your best bet is to get secretarial courses, spread your legs, and marry your boss. That's all you're good for. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wow. And isn't that setting us all the way back to the turn of the century when women were supposed to stay at home and raise the kids and that's all they were good for? And didn't we fight to prove that we are better than that? But now the woke societies, why are you complaining? You don't have to. You, you, you can have a husband and, and kids, and then you can be fulfilled. And yet, if you stay at home and you're a stay-at-home mom, well, why aren't you out there doing something? So no matter what we do, we're going to be criticized. Wow. That is true. <laughs> like catch-22. And, well, you gotta, that is where you're commanded to get out there and uh, speak with boldness and truth. And once you do that, who cares about anything else? Because you know that you're, you're standing up for what you believe in. That is true, and there's only two genders. I'm sorry. I know we have AIs, but they have not changed the genome code of, a, of the DNA. No. No. And, and until all that happens, and if that ever happens, that would be an, uh, an atrocity in the eyes of God to change his work. And this is this is a sad part here now, Lucretia, because there's studies coming out saying that our children, are, that because of the smart devices, because they're so involved in online social engineering, if you want to call it, uh, that they are no longer able to handle society. They are more prone to mental illness and more prone to suggestions by social influencers. So if you have a social influencer like Mulvaney that says it's perfectly okay to question your sexuality, despite the fact that science says by the time you're 18 and you're graduating high school, you have decided whether or not what your your sexuality is. And 90% of them decide that they're heterosexual and healthy. But, nope, nope. They are now influencing our children at such a young age that they're changing the whole demographics of our world. It's sad. It's heartbreaking. But this is where we are the parents. This is where we are the guidance. We are the leaders. We are the mentors, not the government. Because June Pierre, uh, Karen, I don't know her name. She's she like a Karen to me. Jean de Pierre tried to say that, again, that our children don't belong to us. They belong to the government. Well, I have something for you. My nine grandchildren belong to their mothers and fathers, and I am the guardian of their galaxy. 
So I don't know what the government is talking about. I'm not going to give up my authority over my youngins or over my grandkids to allow somebody else that does not have clarity of mind and just have a wicked soul to have anything to teach them. So I would rather teach them while they're all going to be here all summer. They're going to learn a lot. And trust me, right now, they don't have a pad in their hands. They are outside playing. Mm-hmm. And this is what they're finding because the kids are no longer able to socialize with each other. They don't know what the outdoors is about. They're not healthy. They're more obese. They have higher blood pressure, higher cholesterol, heart disease at such a younger age. They're socially unfit. I had a deacon uh, running the youth program in my church, and he said, they can't look you in the eyes and shake your hand. You tell them to go for a job interview, they have no idea what to do. And how many times if you go through, say, Lowe's or Home Depot or a grocery store or any of these big box stores where they have the kiosk for, you know, filling out a job application, you see the child with a parent filling out the application for them. We we are raising a completely inept society to follow in our footsteps. And I worry for the state of this nation unless we start doing a turnaround and do a turnaround fast. We're going to have to turn it around fast. We we have to. But you got to realize, if, even if we look at ourselves, and I'm going to put, I'm going to, on my point of view, I really didn't grow up. I didn't get away from the wild life or not really paying attention to what I had to until after I was 25 years old. So we know that most, uh, well, scientifically, they're saying that the brain isn't developed until like 18, 19 years old or older, but then men don't really grow up until they're in their uh, late 30s. So mm-hmm. most of them, they sow, they sow, they wild oats. But it seems like the older you get, when you pass 25, you start getting up in your 30s, you start taking life a little bit more serious. You start listening to what your grandparents and your parents taught you, and that is when you start seeing a lot of these people, a lot of people, actually start paying attention to the world around them, and then that is when they set in their ways start coming in, not in the 20s, not in the teen years, but normally by 30, you know exactly what you want to do. You might still have confusion in your life, drama, and everything else, but usually around 30 is when people decide to grow up. Well, I believe it was the New England Journal of Medicine that I think it was a little over a decade ago wrote a study uh, that the human brain does not fully develop sexually until the age of 27, which explains why for women it may be a little bit earlier, uh, men a little bit later. But you you take that consideration that at the age of 18, 90% of the high school students have decided what their sexuality is. And at that time of the study, 90% said they were healthy heterosexuals. Your wild oats, as you say, being sowed up until a certain age, when you finally realize, well, this is a little bit too much promiscuity. I want something more out of life. I want a family. I want a good job. I want this. I want that. I want prosperity, a few dollars in my bank. You think more towards your future. That's when your brain is now fully developed. Um, But until then, in today's society, with the wokeness, with these social influencers, uh, I don't know if you saw the commercial for North Face sports uh, uh, clothing and that rainbow-colored creature that was doing the commercial. 
uh, someone should have told him he should have shaved his mustache first before he pranced around like a woman. Um, I'm, I'm going to get banned. <laughs> Here we go, you two. <laughs> I'm laughing. Can they be at least cute? If you're going to try to be a female, be a cute one, please. But it's not. The five o'clock shadow. Right. Okay, women, we know we get mustaches. We call ours mustaches. When we start hitting about premenopause, menopause, on upwards. So this is what I say to all these transgenders out here. If you cannot deal with bleeding for 40 years straight without passing away, and it's guaranteed every month, if you're not going through hot flashes and hormonal changes, you ain't a woman. If you cannot squeeze no. a bowling ball off between your legs, you're definitely not a woman. And if you can't a have a, a snap on a split of a dime and get happy again in the next second, then you truly are not a woman. Now, now they have all these artificial things they do for these men claiming to be women. And I have not been able to find the full article. I saw only a picture someone posted up on Facebook about a man who claims to be a woman, claims to be breastfeeding his child, her child, its child, uh, I taking hormones, and I don't know if that is possible. Yeah, man, I, I mean, yeah, but how do they lactate? I, uh, let me, uh, let's just, uh, scientifically, uh, we're going to follow the science. We're going to follow the science of Annie and Lucretia. Okay, this is Annie and Lucretia science. Just like they have <laughs> pregnant sympathies for us and they have the pregnant weight, pregnant craving, pregnant everything, and they kind of deal with the same emotions that a female go through when they're pregnant, it's not far-fetched to me to, uh, for them to lactate. I mean, they got boobs. They got man boobs. I mean, I like my husband with his boobies. But, yeah, that doesn't mean they got bigger <laughs> boobs than mine. Look at Bill Gates. <laughs> but unless they have the glands in there, and I don't know if uh, this is something, if maybe someone who knows their biology can tell me, but that they actually have glands that could cause lactation. Um, I think that maybe it's something uniquely female. I don't know. Uh, maybe I missed that part of biology in high school science, but uh, I, I, I still find this curious. Anyway, we're we're getting way off stream here. But. <laughs> I like shows like that. You know what? This is common sense. We don't live in a play-play, make-believe world. We just won't. And I'm 48 years old. There's no way in the world that I'm going to accept a lie that there's more than two genders. So we're just going to leave it at that. We do know about hermaphrodites, so y'all can, y'all save us with that, who is less than 1% of the whole world population, so male and female. Uh, I'm going to stick with that. And remember this, who are they going to counsel? We don't work for anybody. We work for ourselves. So counsel what? <laughs> they can't counsel us because we're just going to pick up and make a new name and keep on going. Well, what they do do now is that if you have, say, for example, PayPal, uh, you can't go and use your PayPal debit or credit card to uh, buy a gun. Um, If you want to pay for your subscription, say, for example, on Blog Talk Radio or Spreaker or Facebook or whatever you're doing to to broadcast, uh, no, PayPal will not allow you to do that. Uh, Bank of America has already done that. As we see now, Capital One is giving is being canceled because they're not following the equity, the ESGs. Uh, oh, was it? 
what the heck is that? If, if, what is it, equity? Digital banking, that's getting ready to happen with Fed now. Nah, I, they're going to find some way to shut us down by using our everyday things, uh, whether it's your oh, bank account. Oh, you're talking about uh, uh, credit social score. Yeah. yeah they're going to use that now. So, hey, you know, your little smart device that you leave on all the time is going to use facial recognition, and it will decide, like the Chinese already do, depending upon the mood that goes across your face, what you're thinking. Uh, mm-hmm. we, didn't you already talk about the Biden administration already has the thought police? Shades of 1984, and this was all predicted in the book, George Orwell, 1984, the thought police, the Department of Thought Police. And yeah. Biden has tried to, I think this is the third or fourth time he's tried to institute this. And sooner or later, he's going to slip something through that we can't shut down. That That's is why Ryan. this presidential really race trying. is so pivotal. This wow. presidential race is so, so pivotal. And if we don't shut this down soon, we're going to make a turn on this nation that we're not going to be able to come back from. And I, that is so scary. That is, that's really yeah. scary to me. Mm-hmm. But we're going to keep going because God commanded us to. We see what's going on. God has placed us on this platform and on different platforms so we can get out there and continue spreading the truth, regardless if people want to hear it or not. I'm going to, I'm, like the old Neil Bortz used to say, who are you truly mad at? Because I know it's not me. I don't write the laws. I'm not taxing you to death. So until you really figure out what you truly mad at, stay off my show. And that's kind of what I say. <laughs> Do your own research. Don't believe a word that I have to say. Bring the receipt. Don't, I don't like misinformation, but I don't know who pissed in your Cheerios, but it wasn't Lucretia Hughes. <laughs> that, is, that is a true amen to that one. And for those that are listening, yes, Lucretia and I really do our homework. We do pull up all the news articles. And I've sometimes waved in front of the camera the stack of papers that I print out, and I go through a ream of paper ugh, uh, every other week with everything I print out and uh, I, I can back it up with the articles and that's the only way God and then they can't for... call us liars they cannot call us liars no. when well, we back it up with the articles and then if they want to say well that's wrong then this is where you come back and tick for tack because I'm a troll hunter I love trolls I like the whack a troll but this is where you say <laughs> where do you see my name as being the editor or even the writer of this article. So if you got a problem and you got something to complain about, then I'm gonna need for you to Google them and go straight and talk to them. But you're gonna get out my face. See, this is how you need to Absolutely. treat these people because they don't got too much Absolutely. out of pocket. They have gotten too comfortable with attacking us, saying anything that they want to, and it's time for us to put them back in their place because they ain't met two women like us. No, 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 no. And like I said, I've reached that point in my life at this age. I have no patience for stupidity. <laughs> I just don't have any patience for stupidity. So just get off my phone, dummy. <laughs> just get off my phone, you dummy. <laughs> so they don't like it, but we're going to keep going. You've been doing this for, uh, for a while. You're established. Yeah. Your name is trusted. You have integrity. You have all of that. So when people come and try to attack you or say they're going to counsel you, 
tell them to try it because you're not going anywhere and they can't stop you. No, no. But And like you, you know, I stay up out there on the front line. I'm involved with my county GOP. We had our meeting last night. Um, I still run a tea party. And since 2009, been running that. I've been doing this since uh, 2010. So, yeah, we, we stay on the front line, and we make sure our voice stays out there. And that's important. And I found I, the article that I read last night, so I'm just going to read just put it on your Facebook page. So you can talk about this if you choose to, but here's the title. It is Missouri versus Biden Lawsuit Discovery. The Biden regime designates your thoughts as part of government infrastructure. They call it the cognitive infrastructure, and they believe it is their right to control your thoughts. Yeah, so that's, I just that's your what's Facebook going wall so you can have it and uh, relay it and really think about it. It says because the suit alleges a massive coordinated effort by the deep state, permanent administrative state, for the people that don't know, that's the ones that are appointed or hired and not elected, that's up in Washington, D.C., that never goes anywhere, to work with big tech to censor and manipulate Americans, from cover average citizens to news outlets on issues including the Biden Hunter, Hunter Biden's laptop from hell, the 2020 election integrity, COVID-19 or origin, and the extended uh, skepticism of COVID-19 vaccine, among other issues. So they are calling it the way you think, the way you watch television, what you listen to on the radio. The government controls it, and they are calling it cognitive infrastructure. And now every citizen in America thoughts are controlled by the, the, the ruling class. Well, we've got a listener who just sent me a text on my phone, and thank you, Sue. Sweet Sue uh, is, has been a long, long-time friend of this uh, station and of mine, and she was a nurse, and she wrote, um, males glands in breasts just like females, but she questions whether or not the hormones could actually stimulate the lactation. Possible, but unlikely and very complicated. She took care of a scientist from Los Alamos who had died of breast cancer. So I do know men do and can get breast cancer. Um, but the question is whether or not they can actually stimulate the lactation through hormones. And that's what I question. That's what I question. Thank you so much, Sue. Thank you. She's a, she's I got a, a question sweetheart. for Sue since she's listening. Miss Sue, now that we know that there's GMOs and hormones in everything we eat, drink, smell, the water, everything, and if you look at 30 years ago or 40 years ago, the men was built like Stallions. I mean, booyah, just men was men. <laughs> now, they rocking skinny jeans at the age of 20. What in the world are they putting in our food? And how in the world are there so many feminine men this time around than it was in the 70s, 80s, and 90s? That is what I would well, like to know. Well, Sue is actually inside the studio, and I unmuted her. So, Sue, don't get mad at me. <laughs> but if you want to join Lucretia and I, please chime in. Okay, uh, you know that I'm not quite sure what's going on. I think a lot of it is psychological, and I think it's what is going on in school. You know, I think a lot of what we're seeing, uh, you can act 
feminine or you can act really masculine. And these people who are going around and acting really feminine and, you know, on this and that, they can turn around and act the other way too. I think a lot of the masculinity comes with uh, the type of activity that you do. But also, you are right. Everything that they've been putting in our foods and everything else has affected our bodies. But I think the the women have eaten the same stuff, too. And we don't see it affecting them quite as much as we're seeing all of these men. And I think a lot of these men... Uh, truly are not trans. I think they're in there to get their medals and their scholarships and whatever they can glean. But um, that's kind of the way I view it. Now, there was no, an I article that came out last night, Sue, that China is actually making an artificial womb. So they're making an artificial womb that should be online in five years that should be able to give a man the ability to birth a baby. Now, here's my question, because we know their pelvis, there's no way they're going to push that out. How in the world is the body not going to attack that artificial womb when it's a foreign uh, entity inside of a person's body? Do they even think about something like that, that the body naturally attacks anything that is foreign inside of it? Look look at it this way. Uh, We're doing artificial heart transplants correct? People Mm -hmm. are getting artificial hearts, you know, kidneys. Uh, Some, you know, uh, I think Cheney had one. I don't know if he still does. But they give you a lot of drugs to keep your body from attacking and rejecting it. Now, I do believe they will come up with a womb that could possibly carry a baby, but the problem's going to be the drugs they're going to have to give them to stop the body from attacking and rejecting it. So it's going to be interesting to see. But I know when they first started with the artificial heart and everything, everybody was, no way this could, you know, work. But, uh, yeah. I I could see that coming in the future. The question is, the drugs that they'll have to give, will it destroy the baby as it tries to keep the body from attacking uh, the artificial womb? All right, well, we've got another caller in. We've got another caller in on the studio that raised their hand. Let me bring this person in. Uh, the last two digits of the phone number is 5-3. You're on the air live with Southern Sense. I'm your host, Annie. Uh, my co-host, uh, guest host is Lucretia. To whom am I speaking? It's Bianchi. How are you doing, Southern Sense? Hi, Bianchi. How are you doing? You know, it's been a little I'm while. We fine. haven't heard from you in a couple of weeks. Well, welcome back. Yeah, thank you very much. You know, you uh, made mention, I don't know if you were talking about the word that's going around and that Joe Biden is boasting that he can e- evoke the 14th Amendment in order to raise the debt ceiling. Well, the conversation shouldn't be on raising the debt ceiling. The conversation should be on cutting, cutting, cutting these costs, cutting the budget. You know, they can raise the debt ceiling clean off into the heavens. But you still got these programs. These programs are ran by bureaucrats. These bureaucrats 
are in the thousands. They form a voting block. The program is not, you know, never end. If they design to help remedy some of the suffering of people, they never end because if the the cause of the program was the end, then the program would end and all those bureaucrats would be out of a job. And, well, you know, another thing, the, too. Go ahead. Well, well, the problem is is that once you turn off one of those programs, the bleeding heart liberals would turn around and go, oh, look who you took uh, from. All right, this person, whether it is a uh, welfare-to-work program or – oh, sorry. Oh, I, I didn't mean to say that. We're supposed to give them government money, and there's no way for them to pay us back, even though they're of healthy working age and quite capable of working. But, no, we can still give them the, the welfare, the Section 8 housing, the food stamps, the free Medicaid, uh, clothing allowance, whatever else they need. It is yeah, $7,000 program. You're going to affect, quote, the We cannot afford $7,000 per illegal alien that is coming across the southern border. We have our own elders, veterans, and everyone else. And if my household have to be on a budget, time for America's also, yes, they need to cut that spending, and they need to, to uh, I think, the I call it the sunshine uh, laws. If a law or tax has been on the books for more than 50 years, it needs to be struck down, taken away, and instead of compounding it with more uh, giveaways and more freebies. If we can eliminate it, I'm, I'm going to say this for the people that don't like it. If you take 10 or $15 out of everybody's, not the elderly, y'all deserve it, food stamps, welfare, and the rest of that, and put it back into the coffer, that would save us a whole bunch of money, too. Well, yes, and you've been very generous for 50 years. I go with like five years myself. And you know another <laughs> thing you're talking about, those type of benefits. Uh, child support should begin at conception rather than when the child is born because when the child is born, in many of the cases, you can't find the father at all. And another point, Minnesota, uh, let's get on the convention of states, uh, get their proposal and get it carry through your general assembly so we can add one more state because the three things on article five convention of the state is limited term limits you got the overreach of the federal government that needs to stop and just like we just got through talking about there needs to be balanced budgets and they need to be kept in place absolutely a huge and event I love to that. The convention of states now if they can actually Hold it down. This is the only thing I'm skeptical about when it comes to Convention of States. It doesn't matter how many different delegates are sent from a state. You can only vote on one agenda or one amendment to change the Constitution. But here it is because we know what the upper echelon or the elitist or the ruling class will do behind closed doors. How can we guarantee that if the Convention of States are uh, put together and they do have a, a meeting, convention, or something like that to change the Constitution or make an amendment to the Constitution, how do we know that they're only going to abide by the rules of the agenda that was set forth once they get behind closed doors? That's the only thing about Convention well, of States that I don't like. Pianki, well, Pianki, I had Typhoon Lou and a couple other people, matter of fact, um, Herman Cain was someone that spoke uh, on this, and I, I had the pleasure of meeting him when he did so. Uh, the Convention of States, if they follow the format that was originally set, the agenda cannot be changed. 
if anyone forces a change to the agenda during the Convention of State, they will be evicted. They will be removed. So they must adhere to the specific agenda and no, no way for you to turn it around. Each state has one vote. So you can have 50 delegates, but your state gets one vote. Absolutely. And that is You're how absolutely right. we're Here's doing it. Here's another that. thing. So, which is, as, as Phyllis Sheffley said, and I interviewed her on this also be, just before she passed away, Phyllis Sheffley said she was afraid of a runaway con-con, which is why when they did the articles for the Convention of States, they narrowly defined it and kept it that way. Absolutely. And I knew Phyllis Sheffley was in St. Louis. But, you know, another thing, too. Suppose California say, let's get away with the, do away with the Second Amendment. Well, you got to have 38 states that approve that, and that's very, very, very unlikely. But anyway, I really enjoy your program. You guys have a wonderful Memorial Day weekend, and uh, we see you again. Yes, sir, well, you thank too. you very much, Bianchi. And I do believe, if I remember correctly, you were a veteran? No, I came up right at the end when Nixon uh, done away with the draft. Nah, you slipped through. Well, thank you. You're always fun to have on the show and a good call. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. But uh, um, when I was doing the Getting interview when they first Sue. were coming out. Is Sue back home here? It's still, oh, she's with us. Sue. Go okay, ahead. Shoot Sue. away. We're going to talk about transgenderism. You ready for this? <laughs> when men get a, a fake for JJ. When men get a fake but JJ, we know that the red blood cells and platelets automatically try to heal a cut. Why do they need to open themselves constantly pretty much every day to five days a week, have to exercise that down there so it does not close? Uh, I don't understand what you're asking. I haven't heard of this before. Oh, you need to watch some documentaries. Uh, basically, okay. the transgender men want uh, what they're very angry about and they wish they couldn't, didn't have to do it, is that since it's an artificial opening down there and it's split open down there, they must exercise it on a weekly basis to keep it open. And the only thing we got to do is do cable exercises to keep it tight. So that's what the question is. <laughs> oh, wow, TMI. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, TMI. <laughs> <laughs> well, if they want to be women, they need to know the pros and the cons. <laughs> well, yeah, you know they do. You might find this interesting. Um, I was a nurse back when the sex change operations first occurred. The first ones were done in Trinidad, Colorado. I actually met the doctor who developed it, and, well, he had many wives. He married a lot of his nurses, but I worked with one of the nurses who at the time was married to him, and I believe they're still doing the sex change operations in Trinidad. But his idea and him doing this is very, very different than what they're doing today. They had to live as a male for, I think it was two or three years, intense psychological uh, training, you know, that they went through. Uh, the things that they did you know, he did because he didn't want them later. I think part of it was coming back and suing him, you know, uh, 
about changing them when they didn't want to change. Now what they're doing with these young kids and these transgender, they're not doing any of the psychological. I think if they did do that and did family counseling and everything this doctor required, that you would not be seeing what we're seeing today. They have skipped some very essential steps in doing this yeah. and uh, uh, you know it's it's really bad what they're doing and uh, you know at the time it was pretty shocking to me and everything that he was doing but most of them that I knew about I think he would do maybe about eight or ten in a year um, you know they turned out okay there were a few suicides that occurred and things like that. But what they're doing today does not resemble what he did when he started all of this. No, it's going completely off the rails because we've interviewed, I don't know if you remember the show that we did with Walt Heyer. We had him on a few times and he wrote the book Sex Change Regret because he lived under his sex change as a woman yeah. for eight years when he realized it was a huge mistake. The, and back in the 50s when they first started it, you had to go through severe psychological analysis. And then you yeah. had to live, if you were a man, you had to then live dressing as a woman and everything for so many years to, to make sure you were comfortable doing that. And there were so many steps. Yeah. So you didn't walk in uh, like you're walking into the local five and dime and get your hormones and start your sex change right away. You had to go through so many steps over a number of years. It was like today. Well, today I'm not. I'm not Bob. Um, I'm Billy Joe, and and I, I really am a girl. And my hair's not black. I'm, I'm going to actually be a blonde. Uh, call me Billy Joe from now on, but don't tell my parents, but give me the sex change hormones, send me to a doctor that can start the process without my parents knowing. That did not exist. It was strictly regulated. And as you said, well, you know, it was, uh, very few people ever did it because of once they understood what they had to go through, how they had to live, was it worth it? And, you know, one of the things that they had back in the beginning was there had to be intensive family counseling because these people, in order to survive what they were doing, they needed the support of the family. That was important. Mm -hmm. And they're taking the family out of this. And uh, it's not ending. It's not going to end good. It's really tragic. No, and we're seeing a lot of the sex change regrets going on now. We see an increase mm-hmm. in sexual abuse, uh, drug and alcohol abuse, suicide. Yes. Children as young as five and six years old committing suicide. Now, there was a woman that someone posted her comments up on, again, uh, I, no, it was on Twitter that I saw. She was upset because they stopped the sex change hormone treatments for her child, a preschool child that she was treating with hormones on her own and I guess someone stepped in and said no this is a little bit too much and she's upset wondering where she can get off the market the hormones to give to her child this is how bad it has gotten whether this treat was true or not or someone was throwing something out there but I really wouldn't put it past some of these people um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull something out of your head Lucretia, it used to be there was a syndrome that parents had 
where they would make their child sick so they could get attention themselves. Uh, it was a case out of Texas that they named the syndrome after. I don't know if you remember what I'm talking about. Two. What yeah. is that? Yes. What is it? What was it, Sue? I, I think it was called, uh, if I'm remembering right, Neuhauser syndrome. It's People are still being diagnosed with that today. But, yes, it's a mentally ill parent who makes their child sick, and in quite a few cases they actually killed their child to uh, get the sympathy and get what they needed. But, yeah, there is that syndrome, and people still have it today. This lady could have, have had that syndrome. Which is why I question, because you're looking at a lot of these parents, and they have a young child that they decide at birth. And we've, we've seen interviews with people that are doing this. I knew at birth my, my son was actually a girl. Uh, we see case after case where kids don't even understand the difference between a boy and a girl, and yet they're being told. told. Yeah. Wait a minute. That was a that was actually a case in Texas, wasn't it? Two twin boys, where twin the boys. father was yeah. fighting, and the mom turned exactly. one of them into a girl, and he left the other yeah. one. You know the psychological damage that is going to do to those two boys. Absolutely, absolutely. But we do have our our final guest uh, on the show. It looks like Mark Tapscott may have gotten held up. Uh, with all the stuff that's going on, I'm sure his Washington desk is flooding with information and articles he's going to be writing up. So let's welcome back to the show, Lucretia, uh, from the Heritage Foundation, uh, Hannah Davis. Good afternoon, Hannah. How are you today? Thank you for having me. I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing great. It, listen, um, right now we're looking at competing legislation coming through the House. Um, I had this one bill. Uh, H.R. 2, if I can pull the title up, if I scroll up here, uh, uh, what the heck was it called? Uh, Secure the Border Act, which was put through, and of course my computer's acting up, here we go, by Representative Diaz uh, Ballard out of Florida. But now I'm reading that just came out of also Florida, Republican Representative Maria Alvera Salazar and Texas Democratic Representative Veronica Escobar have put up another type of immigration reform, and this one's a 500-page monstrosity. What are you hearing between these two legislations? I've been hearing that uh, H.R. 2, the Secure the Border Act of 2023, is, is the better of the two, um, just because of the what's, what's put in it. I mean, it builds the wall. There's more Border Patrol agents, more financial incentives for them hiring and keeping them, so retention incentives too, tower-based surveillance, drones, sensors, that kind of thing. Um, I have yet to fully read, because you're right, it is, it's a long bill, and the longer it is, probably filled with more fluff, right? Mm-hmm. You think. <laughs> yeah. Well, now, you know, with the Heritage reading... Foundation, do y'all have anything to do with this debt feeling, uh, that's going on right now fight? Or when y'all are up in Washington, what what do y'all actually focus on? Now, I know about the Heritage Foundation and the, the multitude of stuff that y'all do for the Constitution, America, God, family, and country. But when you're in Washington, D.C., and with so much stuff going on and being pulled in so many different locations, 
What else do y'all focus on, especially right now as, uh, with this going on? What What is the biggest focus for uh, the Heritage Foundation? Yeah, so Heritage employs a little bit over 400 people, and uh, it's a big building. We take up a whole city block <laughs> right there in Capitol Hill, <laughs> and um, there's multiple floors, and every floor has multiple uh, departments within their center. And so I, I obviously I focus on Border Patrol and um, anything immigration-related. Uh, but, yeah, we have economists, lawyers, legal studies that focus specifically just on the debt ceiling and, and anything economic-related debates um, that fall into their preview they would, they would handle. We have people that only focus on life, family formation, abortion policy. We have people that only focus on health care policy. You name it, we got it. Amen. Now, what's the border? Uh, because it's wide open. And since 2021, over 6 million, if you believe the numbers, I think it's more than that. 6 million illegal aliens have walked across our border, and that's not the quarter million kids that has gone missing. What oh, yeah. can we you're, do? You're, because the, we, we're not a nation if we don't have borders. Right. Yeah, we're not We're not going to be one that stands for much longer without a border. You're exactly right. We'll... we'll uh, We'll kill ourselves from the inside out. Um, since office Biden, since Joe Joe Biden took office, over 6.2 million uh, legal aliens have crossed into our border, um, northern border, ports of entry at the southern border, and by boat. You know, the east coast and west coast, and we've got over 1.5 million gotaways. So those are people that did not go through a port of entry. They specifically did not want to be caught. Those are the drug smugglers, the human traffickers, that kind of mm. thing. Um, and what we can do, um, now that H.R. 2 did pass the House very narrowly, um, the Secure the Border Act, that was the first step. So Congress can control the purse strings. You know, we've got power of the purse a little bit, and, and we can stop these, um, like, for instance, Homeland Security Appropriations Bill, Biden put in $4 billion for just climate change. If he put half of that amount to actually trying to secure the border, we'd be in a much better place than we are now. So Congress controls the pair of strings, and we can stop the whole equity and inclusion and the climate change stuff and focus on what really matters right now. Because even if you want to argue that those laws make sense and, and we should eventually get to them, there's no point in doing that when the national security of our nation is just totally blown away. Um, there's no point in um, any other passing any other bills or passing any other laws or trying to dive into the climate change debate or the equity and inclusion debate if we've got porous borders. That's like putting a, a roof on a house with no foundation. Yeah, um, you posted up on Heritage. Actually, Sarah actually did the little video going into yeah. Target. Oh, my goodness. I, I, I reposted that, if you noticed. Um, oh, thank you. Heritage, thank you. Heritage has so many things you guys do. And I thought it was really poignant that you went out there and showed what is actually going on on the outside world. And we have this wokeness that is, we were talking all about the show, the whole show, about the wokeness that's permeating our society. Where there's something that Sarah is exposing, like Target with the LBGTXYZLMOPQRX, whatever it is, group, you on the wokeness of immigration, I mean, how dare we decide to protect the integrity of our borders? Uh, yet, if I were to cross over into Mexico and attempt to buy a home or get a job, I'd be in jail. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah. we can't. That's exactly we can't. right. Russia can. 
China can, Iran can, every other nation in the whole entire world except the United States. Are we really that stupid? I I believe under the current administration we are. We're falling in that trap. Um, and, and you're right, Sarah, she, she went in there with that bravery and, and she, she did what she had to do and Target, Target's feeling it. They've lost the most, I think I saw something and it, the numbers keep increasing every time I get on Twitter. I think they've lost like $10 million worth of stocks. That I mean, was it's, it's insane. Yeah, it's wild. It's catching but up to them. Anheuser-Busch, Anheuser-Busch lost almost $17 billion. So collectively yeah. with the world corporations, we're winning. That's a win for Americans. Well, win for uh, regular folks. That's the same. Yeah, and you know, you know, I, I mentioned a, min, a minute ago that you know Congress, we we control the power, we the power of the purse, and and so do people in their own homes. You know, if you don't shop there, if you don't if you don't buy uh, Anheuser Busch products, I saw recently um, at Walmart they're selling for about a dollar and twenty cents, and they will not leave the shelves. It doesn't matter. People don't forget. <laughs> No, they don't. They don't. Now you have Schmirnoff that's also catering to the the other compu- the alternative community, which I'll be polite to say instead of trying to go LBGT XYZ whatever the alternative community. Um, you also have Adidas, uh, North Face, and the list and list is going on. And heaven forbid you're a corporation that doesn't adhere to the new woke ideology. Uh, right. Heaven we're going to have to, you and but I, we're going to have to open up our own distillery. Uh, no, no, well, no. We do live Matter in fact, Georgia, so there's a lot of steels down here. How much you want to cook? <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, in South Carolina, by law, I can have a still in my own yard as long as it's for my personal consumption. So, yeah, well, I'm right across the border from you. I love some um, apple, uh, apple pie moonshine. I could give you some. <laughs> Apple pie moonshine. <laughs> well, I'm heading south right now to North Carolina. That's not too far away. No, All right, no. tell Mark we said hey. <laughs> <laughs> but well, how do you feel reading... about that? Uh, speaking of that, since you're traveling all over United States, do you when do you go and talk to the governors, the lieutenant governors? Um, of these different states to see what is uh, their biggest concerns and how the Heritage Foundation can actually assist them? They actually, they tend to come to us. Um, so they'll oh. come to us and, yeah, up on the fifth floor, they'll come to the border department and we'll sit them down and tell them what they're doing right or tell them what they're doing wrong in regards to immigration in their state. And um, if they're coming to us, most of the time they'll end up listening. And that's that's the power I like the most is when I get to see actual change um, because we can't rely on the current administration, so the states themselves have to make that change, and they have to be willing to do that, you know, to, to limit in-state tuition for illegal aliens or driver's license or the right to vote. And if we sit them down and tell them how much they're losing in health care costs or something like that, they'll they'll usually listen. Money talks. Yeah, and then the walks. <laughs> but, now, you know, what type we, of pushback do you get when you get out there and you are – do you ever meet people that are not uh, receptive to what you have to say or the information or the research you want to give them, or are they just stuck in their ways and saying, we're just going to take all these illegals? We don't care about uh, the southern border? Typically when I go to an ICE conference, I'll, um, someone will say, well, who are you with? And I'll say Heritage, and they'll go, oh, and I say, who are you with? And they'll list off one of the numerous NGOs that are facilitating this uh, trafficking crisis across our borders, and the conversation kind of goes stale. 
So, but I've never had yeah. anyone come to Heritage specifically asking for assistance and then them um, turn us away or anything like that because they're usually going to be on the right side of the aisle. Well, now, Hannah, I believe it was last week with you I was asking, is there a way we can cut off the federal funding to the NGOs? Because once we take that little thing away, all of a sudden now our taxpayer dollars are not going to fund illegal activities being supported by the NGOs, like the Catholic bishops or the Lutheran churches. Yeah, there's a way, and and that's kind of going back to the appropriations bill. If we put um, a caveat in there that explicitly states that no taxpayer's money can fund FEMA's emergency food and shelter program, then that money won't be able to be funneled towards these NGOs, to Catholic Charities, Lutheran Immigration Refugee Services, and the like. They won't be able to get that money, and thus they won't be able to, you know, harbor and transport illegal aliens across the nation. Now, I know Sarah Bernhardt at one point had a website that she kept track of the NGOs, and I haven't looked at it for a number of years, but does anyone really keep track of all of these NGOs that are aiding and abetting illegal immigration? Uh, I do. <laughs> so there's one right there. I do. <laughs> See? Um, a good opening. It's, it's a running list. It's a running list. Yeah. I've, um, in my mind, I've got over, I've got a running document. It's got over about 20, maybe 25. And then, you know, Catholic Charities, that's one, but then they've got subsidiaries in almost every county and almost every state, it seems like, you know, they just proliferate. Um, and so, um, yeah. So if, so you count one, but then you got to count their subsections, their, their sub bodies. Actually, that was an opening to uh, something that was on the Heritage Foundation, uh, Oversight Project Investigation, and covers shocking facts about who's facilitating Biden border crisis. What did this investigation uncover? So basically, we worked with a contractor, um, and they were able to track the movement of illegal aliens from south of the border to the interior of the nation, and they went into every congressional district in the nation. So when people say every every state feels like a border state, they're not. It's, that's not any right wing fear mongering. That's that's the truth, um, the cold hard truth. And and we were able to track them via the GPS systems they're given, via the phones they're given. I know you like to call them the Obama phones, uh, but the Biden phones. Um, <laughs> we were able to track and see where they go, and they they end up. You know, most people think they probably stay south you know, for um, agricultural reasons. But, no, they're up in Chicago. They're in Washington. Sometimes they go all the way to Canada. I mean, they they go everywhere. They spread out. And it was actually quite startling to see um, because for the longest time people thought that, you know, they might migrate to, to certain areas and stay there. But that's just not the case. Well, what you did was using geofencing, you went and tried to find mm-hmm. the physical, physical location uh, by tracing the devices and pinging them. And what I found amazing is that um, here, where is it? here it is. In phase two, uh, demonstrated that these 22,000 devices were later traced to 431 separate U.S. congressional districts, out of a total mm-hmm. of 435 districts. Of the 52 yeah. districts with the highest density of the devices, 71% were Republican. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, probably because all the sanctuary cities are already overrun. <laughs> They're like, we don't want to go there. Um, but, you know, sanctuary city, I feel like, is becoming an outdated term. Um, it's more so like a sanctuary country at this point. Um, and actually, Customs and Border Patrol released a tweet just yesterday, and they 
There was a lot of hell for it because they said that there was no way that NGOs were being paid to facilitate traveling, um, that, you know, migrants weren't put on flights or buses or trains, um, but it's true. Um, and so they were called out. And the geofencing also, it kind of contradicts the left's argument where they say, oh, well, we can't track them. We don't know where they're at. They can't show up to their court days. There's no way to track. Well, we track them, so why can't you? It's got, you know, the current administration's got a lot more money than the Heritage Foundation. So it's all a lie. It's all guys. It is, it is, and it's, it's a number game, and they tell us that the crossings have dropped under Title 42, uh, but again, again, that's a lie. Yeah, no, there's there's little reason to for confidence that, you know, dropping of Title 42 will suppress the surge, because it, it, it simply didn't. Actually, Biden's new rule is for them to request asylum south of the border in Mexico or in Central American countries. And what people don't realize is that there's multiple assistance centers that are there south of the border to help them uh, check in, tell them how to claim asylum, tell them how to get around credible fear interviews and the like. So by the time they get to the border, they're, they're already, they've already claimed asylum, which is what they're supposed to do under previous laws as well. But it's not curbing. It's not curbing the amount. If anything, it's streamlining their uh, falsified claims for asylum so when they get here they can cross the border even quicker if they do decide to go to an official port of entry. Now, Salazar's bill, according to the news article, sounded pretty pretty nice. It sounded, uh, 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 Roll Call had originally put it uh, out and it was reprinted in my local rag, uh, as I call it, the communist rag, and it sounded pretty logical. Where they're going to set up, where they're going to be held as they come across the border, they're going to be interviewed. Um, they have to explain if they're declaring asylum. Uh, Biden says he's going to set up uh, uh, places overseas uh, to screen immigrants before they cross over. Uh, all sounds very nice. But when I was reading the article, I'm saying this is 500 pages. I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. And have you had a chance to at least review this or even try to you know, get like a, a little bit of a, a grip on what's going on here? Because I smell a rat. I really do. Yeah. It, essentially, it creates a – there's some things in it that are certainly not okay. I mean, it creates a pathway to citizenship for the illegal aliens that are already here undocumented. Um, so basically, that sounds just like amnesty. So um, I'd much rather put – uh, the power of the purse towards a bill that doesn't it does the complete opposite. I'm fine with detaining and deporting and deterrence, but um, having the people that are already here under the uh, current administration just given uh, some so-called pathway to citizenship or a lawful pathway to citizenship doesn't make them or the pathway itself legal. Um, so no, I, I don't agree with with that component of the bill, and that's probably one of the biggest issues is that this increased population we're just going to let them we're just be like, oh, we'll show up and you know we'll give you we'll give you some kind of documentation that says probably just green card access and then a, eventual amnesty. Yeah, well, they talk about uh, alleviating right for the. Oh, I just feel it's not right for the people that actually came over here to do it the right way, paid thousands and thousands of dollars in to get their test, the civics test, did all that study and did the right thing, didn't break our laws, just want to be a naturalized American citizen. So if we have that already in place on them becoming legal citizens, then they need to go ahead and do it the right way and come in the right way also. 
yeah, it, it's not fair. It's not fair to the to those um, immigrants that do the process legally, and the backlogs are in the millions. And it's just it's not fair that the current administration is not only putting um, U.S. citizens last, but also putting last the the immigrants that attempt to come here legally. I completely agree with you. It, it sets a bad precedent too, because why is anyone going to try and do it the the right legal way if the current administration just doesn't care about them and only ushers in those that do it illegally. And and my biggest issue with that is I just would never have the gall to say, oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to claim a visa. I'm going to go to France. I'm going to work in France in a bakery. Oh, I really like you here. Let me just, let me just stay. You know, I would never have the gall to go to Canada illegally and just stay or people who um, go to Toronto on a tourist visa and then they just stay. And then these people are even worse because they don't even, they don't even try and circumnavigate the system by getting visas first. They just walk right across the border, detected or undetected. And that's where it really, really starts to grind my gears because if they're going to break a federal law to enter the nation illegally, who's to say they're not going to continue to break laws? Thank you. Absolutely. But then look at the Absolutely. terrorists that are actually coming across the southern border that was on the federal uh, watch list, and they're being found oh, coming yeah. in. Yeah. Go ahead, Hannah. Go ahead. Get started. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a bad thing. We've got, I think uh, the last numbers I saw was somewhere around 60. I think it was about 60, and it's insane because the month of April alone, we've had more people on the terrorist watch list into the nation than we did in, like, the four years prior combined. It's insane. The current immigration policies are absolutely asinine. There's no vetting, and the poor Border border Patrol can't vet. They don't have the time to because they're basically a glorified TSA checking in people at the border, so they have no time to actually patrol. There's no no way for them to patrol, and that's why why, – HR2, we were talking about a moment ago, is actually a, a pretty good bill because it allows for, you know, retention, increased money for them because we're like, hey, you're still here. Even through this horrible administration and their horrible policies, you stuck to your guns and you're still here. We appreciate you. Here's some more money. And then also, hey, Border Patrol, here's more money overall just for you to hire more, more agents. And so um, yep. that's, that's the best way for us to probably curb this. Well, yeah, we don't need more or IRS agents. Away. Just repurpose Thank those. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no more IRS agents. It's, yeah, they're handing them guns. So why don't they just turn around and take those guns and those agents and turn them into customs and border <laughs> patrol and send them down? You don't have to cut the budget there. Just repurpose them. That makes sense yeah, to me. After the illegal aliens, they want American citizens. This is the same administration that made regular moms and dads on the national watch list as being domestic terrorists when only thing they was doing is standing up for the rights to be in parents. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah. We have states beginning to take, you know, parents' rights away if they don't agree with their kids' uh, delusions when it comes to body dysmorphia and things like that. So we're, we're so hyper-focused on this, and I say we as in the Biden administration. But, we, I mean, look at the border. Absolutely poor. So it's like, it's like the, all, all their... Their focus is just completely out of it's completely out of touch with what the average Joe really wants the current administration to do, and it's a shame because the American people deserve better. They don't deserve uh, lies. They don't deserve um, Mayorkas, the secretary, uh, telling us that you know the border is secure when it's downright open. I mean, it's just it's ridiculous, and I don't know how long he thinks um, Biden thinks he can do this without the American people. Um, people who aren't too political or people who are actually left-leaning, for them to, to open their eyes and say, hey, you, you've been lying. You've been lying this whole time. CBP, they tweet all the time, and, and half of them are lies. And it, it's just, it's a, it's a downright shame. Well, uh, we don't have much hope on HR2 getting through the Senate. 
and I don't see anything happening uh, to actually secure this border before the next administration comes into office. And please, Lord, let it be a good, solid Christian conservative. Um, But when I'm looking at the Salazar bill, it, it, it ranks almost as if it's been a repackaged gang of eight shades of McCain and Graham under Obama. Mm-hmm. And they're leaning for asylum. Uh, but what really gets me is they talk about in there, if you're here illegally, you can be here so many years, we'll give you a green card so you can work, but you will pay reparations for a number of years. And then you renew it, you pay more reparations for another uh, number of years, then we'll give you asylum. But that then turns around and says, well, if you have money, and you can afford to pay those reparations, we'll accept you. And then the poor slob that can't afford it, that person will remain illegal inside the fabric of our nation, never to be found again. It it solves nothing. No, it it solves nothing. And uh, nothing good, nothing good's ever cash-based, you know? I mean, heaven, that's not cash-based. Coming to America, the land of the free, that's not cash-based. Things like that shouldn't be cash-based. And so... Uh, trying to pay reparations and whatnot, and and you're right. I mean, these people. I don't. How how are they going to get their funding? It, it brings in a, a whole other spiel of, of issues that could coincide with something like that. And so that you know, we we have these bills and they're so big, and and most of the time they're filled. Half of it's good, and then you got a quarter of fluff and fancy words, and then the other quarter it's it's going to be stuff that's reminiscent of leftist previous administrations, and it's just that's just not going to work. No, it's not. And as I read it more and more for just the article, I mean, 500 pages. But then again, I did read Obamacare, both the House version and the Senate version before he was married. So I guess I'm going to have to download this. Well, see, nobody read Obamacare. Remember, uh, Pelosi said we would have to uh, pass it before we know what's in it. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't she brilliant? And Yeah. And I had been writing about it about six months before she said those stupid things. And I still have the blog up, believe it or not. I still have my blog where I, I wrote that, and stating where in Obamacare it was certain areas that were completely unconstitutional. And I'm, I'm looking at this the Salazar bill, and I'm just saying this is – they're going to force it through simply because it's a bipartisan House bill. It'll reach the Senate. Yeah. Senate will amend it, and it'll end up on Obama's, I'm sorry, Biden's desk. That was a good Freudian slip. Same thing. It'll end up being signed into law. But look what we did. We now have immigration reform that we promised you. Look how wonderful we are. Let's get another four more years of Biden. Oh, Lord, please. And, yeah, the left will tout that um, it had to to be the Democrats that, that pushed it through, that, you know, we needed bipartisan support and, all the right-wing and, um, congressmen and women, they were, they were just putting anti-Christian sentiments in their border bills and whatnot, and it, it, it's ridiculous. They like to, uh, what's the word, cherry-pick? Mm. Well, you know, so it I can does see that nothing happening. to... Yeah, I can see it happening, because it, it doesn't address the fentanyl problem. It doesn't address the human tra- trafficking. It doesn't address the cartels coming across the border. It is not addressing the terrorists that we are finding coming across the border at record numbers. And why are we having a large number of military-age individuals coming across the border? And, oh, gee, large number of them are from what, China? 
Now, why would China oh, yeah. want to be sending military-aged men across our border? Nah, there's nothing going on there, is there? Yeah, China, um, yeah, China is uh, China's just sitting back and waiting. We're destroying ourselves from the inside. There's no need for them to fight us any other way than how we're already killing ourselves all on our own. And you mentioned earlier you don't feel like HR2 has a lot of you know weight in the Senate, and you're probably right. I'd say you are right. But as much gusto as we can keep for HR2 and bills very similar, the better. And um, what any sound presidential candidate will do is run on a immigration reform-based agenda. Well, I, I sincerely hope, and this field that's uh, coming up for our presidential race, especially on the Republican side, is getting very interesting, and we'll see what happens. But I think the American public, especially when we watch the debacle going on in New York City this past week, where veterans were evicted from the hotels to make room for illegal aliens, uh, I think that caught the crow uh, in the throat of a lot of Americans, especially this weekend, Memorial Day weekend, how we disrespect our veterans and the men and women that have sacrificed everything for this nation to cater to criminals. Yeah, you're you're exactly right. In Chicago, seeing the same issue. I mean, uh, multiple police departments have mattresses all over the floors, impeding with people who actually need help, impeding with the officers' day-to-day workload, uh, just sleeping migrants on the floor, family units. Um, lone individuals, it's, it's insane. And um, it, these sanctuary policies of these, of these cities, these left-wing Soros-backed cities, are, they're, they're starting to see that it's catching up to them. I believe Chicago, instead of sending them away, they're saying, oh, we'll take more. We'll take the 200 or so a day, but we're going we're gonna to use taxpayers' money to create a department that's just for the migrant crisis, just for facilitating them in there. And that sounds overwhelmingly just like NGOs to me. And so the more migrants there are, the yeah. more NGOs that are going to pop up, and the weaker the power of the dollar is going to be because the American people are going to be living a paycheck to paycheck much more than they already mm-hmm. have. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And they don't even look at the consequences of their actions at this point because now they're putting the immigrants into these other facilities, be they hotels or schools, especially schools that mm-hmm. no longer are able to use their gyms for our children for the tax dollars we're paying to educate our children. Uh, but when they do the damage and they're seeing the damage done to the structure and to the property, because they have no respect for the rule of law here in the United States, who's going to pick up the bill to repair those buildings, those hotels that are privately owned by stockholders and by individuals? That's going to come back again to the taxpayer to repair the damage to the facilities that our government decided to place them in. And, yeah. and, and it's up this to the is parents. A, a snowball in hell coming down right now. It is, yeah, and it's up to the parents. Uh, a lot of those uh, illegal aliens in the schools and the gyms and the cafeterias at, uh, in New York City, the parents were in an uproar, and a lot of them are leaving because of it. The school said, oh, okay, that makes sense. We need to put our actual, our actual pupils first, not the illegal aliens. And then in Chicago, parents are in an uproar because uh, illegal aliens are allowed to enroll in the elementary, middle, and high schools there without proof of any health care documents. Meanwhile, the civilians, the other children, have to get 16 shots to be able to enroll in school, but these kids, they don't. And right after the height of COVID, which, you know, the left loved to tout that COVID was such a big issue. They love the vaccines. And then why shouldn't these illegal aliens also be held to the same standards as our own American citizens, as our own children? Exactly. That's right. Hannah, it is a 
It is a pleasure. We're down to our last four minutes of the show. This is going like like nothing. It feels like it was only 20 minutes ago we got on air. Hannah, God bless you for the hard work you do over at Heritage, and people can find you at heritage.org where you do fantastic work dealing with immigration. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. And, um, Sue, thank you for uh, joining in, and uh, it's always fun to speak with you. And, Lucretia, thank you for sticking in here with me uh, in C.S. uh, C.S. Bennett's uh, stead. God, am I suffering from brain fart right now. You're just going to bring me on back now, you heal. <laughs> well, I've been promising you that, and now I really do have to make sure that you're part of the show all the time. Yes, ma'am. And you know, just, I'm just one phone call away or a hop, skip, and a jump of 85. Yeah, yeah, you're just right off of I-95, so just hop on up here. <laughs> I have a second microphone. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right, and people can find you at Real News uh, with Lucretia Hughes over on Facebook, as well as going to Lucretia Hughes with the E-S at the end, dot com, correct? As well as Rumble and DLive, which is the Real News with Lucretia Hughes. I'm the black one. <laughs> Lucretia, God bless you, and thank you for hanging out with us. God bless you, too. Have a great Memorial Weekend. Yes, you too. All right, that's all we got for today. And I'm going to leave you with the friend, my friend, teeth and backwards, the song from my friend Gary Pecarella, Save America. So have a great Memorial Day. And so I say good night and God bless. Thank you.